Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Thursday morning, June 2nd, 843-661937. So June is what? I mean, it's Pride Month. Am I understanding that correctly? I saw a uh, uh, I saw a meme yesterday on okay. might have been Facebook or Twitter had a um, had a uh, a person getting kicked out of a car and they had the U- uh, Ukrainian flag kind of labeled and uh, Juneteenth the Pride flag or whatever it is with all the rainbow colors uh, is Jesse mad about the the Rainbow Coalition uh, now we've got an even more colorful coalition. In the LGBTQ, help me here. LGBTQ. I lost track. Oh, of I got all a question letters. for you now. Know. You, you know I'm a simple man. Mm-hmm. You know I'm a very. Good morning, Rev. How good are you? Good morning. Um, you know I'm a very simple man. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand my aptitude limitations. Um, but in LGBTQ plus minus uh, are indifferent. Um, what does the B stand for? Um. I think you're asking the wrong guy. No, I mean, I don't, don't don't be ashamed. I mean, is it is it bisexual? Okay, it, okay, okay, Mike. Thank you, Freehold. Um, isn't <laughs> isn't bisexual kind of sort of an admit it's they're two sexes? I guess that if you that's you know, I mean, I'm a simple man. <laughs> that's a bicycle pretty good has how many wheels? Two. Um, bicentennial in seventy in nineteen seventy six was a celebration of what? Okay. Um, in the LGBTQ, I mean, I understand the, the L is lesbian, right? Um, the T is transgender. The Q is queer. Um, the B is bisexual. Uh, bicycle has how many tires? Two. Bicentennial is what sort of celebration? 200. Okay. Um, you know, that's an interesting point. But I'm a simple man. Yeah. I mean, I only see things as I can uh, discern and understand and it just seems to me um we're going to define june as the um the month of which we don't give a damn you know wh- whether we're celebrating pride month or this uh you my, know my, my favorite meme or uh post was elon did you see elon i did post? not okay so he has a tornado right before june like at the end of may he has a tornado coming and it's got every logo and big companies logos falling and swirling in the tornado and they're all in their rainbow june is coming <laughs> there, there you go the, the hurricane excuse me the tornado is coming yep. um a celebration Every logo with so the yeah rainbow. ukraine get in the back seat yep i mean we don't have time for you now we're going to um we're going to prove our metal or earn our metal by um you know jumping in front of or excuse me putting ukraine in back of the line we cared about you uh, as long as you were not, not, in other words, as long as somebody wasn't more important than you are. Now we've got June pride month and we're, uh, we're celebrating the, the rainbow coalition. Jesse Jackson's got to get paid for this. I mean, in some way, <laughs> shape or form, cause he, I think he created the rainbow coalition and, and now we've got an even more rainbowy group of people, but I don't know that they're not cutting their own, um, their nose off to spot their face, but make an interesting point. The B stands for bisexual. Yeah. And bisexual means it admits that there are two. Yeah. Maybe there's a subset within this set that believes uh, there's only two sexes, and that's the Bs. Mm-hmm. Maybe the Ls and the Qs and the Ts don't believe that, but the Bs do. The Bs have designated themselves as the voice of sanity in this otherwise insane world. Um, I want I want to do something real quick. You show me something, and you know this busy head syndrome. Um, they say the human mind works at full capacity about an hour after the human body awakens itself and uh you know kind of brushes off the cobwebs and gets itself in gear the mind takes about an hour after the body is awakened 
to really get working. It takes me about a half hour because I got half the brain power that most of you have. <laughs> but um, but you showed me the meme, Elon Musk meme of the tornado coming. I don't know if you saw Jamie Dimon's comment yesterday or not. Um, I did. It's kind of interesting that morons like me say things that Jamie, that very, very, very bright people like Jamie Dimon, probably the best banker in America. I'm mean, in all honesty, best banker in America. Um, he said yesterday that he saw trouble headed our way. Now he believes, I think he said he saw storm clouds brewing. Now he believes there's a hurricane heading our way. Duh. I mean, yeah, I, anybody can see this coming. Um, I'll give you an example. So yesterday in the Fed's meetings, I'm going to be the doom and gloom guy here for a second because I want to get this poll we talked about yesterday. Mm. And I want to put, can we do this? Can we play, can we replay, Mike, the poll that Robert had for our audience at 9.05 yesterday because we understand our audience is um, transitional. Some of you are not with us at 9 because of um, obligations, but you are here early in the morning. We had breaking news yesterday, actually exclusively here on Wake Up Carolina, when the, um, the first Trafalgar poll um, on the 7th Congressional Republican primary was made public here over the airwaves of Wake Up Carolina at 9.05 yesterday morning. And you said you really enjoyed um, Robert's delivery I, I sure and the way he kind of went into detail and some of the um, some of the storylines. The data is the data is the data. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me. Um, I have communicated a lot lately with these varying campaigns. Um, it's just interesting. I mean, I'm always texting or or talking to somebody from one of these campaigns, and, and they're basically, um, what do you see out there? What do you sense out there? And, and the reason they would... Uh, you know, talk to me is because of you. I mean, we have this, you know, every morning conversation, five days a week. You have a sense of where my head is. I normally have a sense of where of where your head is. And I think these surrogates and operatives within the campaign, I've talked to the candidates some, not very much. It's normally some of the operatives or surrogates within uh, the campaign. But there, there's kind of an interesting angle that, that I sense out there today. In fact, um, a, a major newspaper in this state, the Post and Courier, reached out to our general manager yesterday. Um, he and I, actually, he sent me, forwarded me a uh, an email. I think you were copied yeah. on the email. Yep. Um, there was a political writer at the Post and Courier who saw the poll, retweeted the poll, and then ran me down last night on um, on email. And uh, we're going to try to talk Friday afternoon. Oh, uh, and he wants your analysis How do you see this thing, yeah. man? I mean, we got a, we got a hotly contested Trump-endorsed candidate versus um, somebody who drew the ire of Trump and uh, Arrington Mace. And, and I think the Trafalgar poll has the incumbent leading that race about 46 to 40 Pretty close, percent. Huh? It's fairly close. Um, if you're an incumbent and you're not in the 50s, uh, you've got trouble. I'm not saying you can't win, but you've got serious, serious problems. Um, but, uh, you know, I looked at my Facebook this morning and one of the campaigns just disputes the polling. I mean, they're basically saying this is BS. I mean, there's been no poll done. I don't know anybody that's been polled. Uh, that's kind of a bizarre argument to make, but I, I get it. You know, if, if the poll is not kind to your campaign or candidacy, right. call BS on the poll. All you can do poll. is discount it. But, uh, you know, I, I would just argue this on Trafalgar, and I can't speak to Crescent Communications or Gallup or, or Quinnipiac or Monmouth. Um, Robert polled for me when I ran for lieutenant governor. We were never outside the margin of error. I mean, we were always within the margin of error. Uh, we were, I think our poll had us up 11. We won by 10.25. Our poll had us up 16 or 17. 
in the primary runoff of 2010. Uh, I think we won by 18, uh, somewhere thereabout. You know, I don't, I don't know what poll. I mean, you trust the polls you choose to trust. I trust the polls I choose to choose to trust, and I would not trust Trafalgar nor Robert Cahaley if we're talking about a Democrat primary. I wouldn't trust him if we're talking about the the mood and sentiment of, of Americans as regard to health care. You know, Pew does a lot of those public opinions sorts of things. This is totally uh, political. I mean, this is 100% um, trying to find a voter and who they're going to vote for. I mean, that's the science behind this. And I want to say this, too, about the, the poll and Cahaley. He's been a good friend to the show uh, all throughout the last few election cycles based on your long-term relationship. Uh, yesterday, he did come on the show, and he announced on the show that it was an exclusive to, to us. I mean, he released it here first, and when he tweeted it out later, he also tagged you yeah. and the radio station and said, as heard on, uh, you know, with, at K, K, R, your handle, which is K-A-R-D-S-C. Card S-C, yeah, yep. with a K. Yep, um, and at Live953. And basically, kind of gave us some some props on that. So I just wanted to say I appreciated that. That's, that's pretty. Cool. Well, I mean that, that you know that gives us some status, yeah. some relevancy that we normally don't have in the national discourse. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people who follow Trafalgar because they've proven to be fairly reliable in some of these. Um, it's just kind of a bizarre argument to make that you know they did a poll. I don't know anybody that got polled. Therefore, the poll is bogus. I mean, I think that's. Uh, I mean, if that's your strategy, good luck with that. Um, the response I'd have for that, for those who don't buy the poll, you know, I just don't buy it. I mean, I don't think, Tom, you know, the, the, another I heard um, is how in the world is rice at 23 or 4 or 5%? <laughs> I mean, there have been a couple of polls now that have in the mid-20s. Um, everybody in the Republican Party doesn't love Trump. I mean, there, there's some um, endearment you gain by going against Trump. Um, I've said it before. I think it's two to one. I mean, some of the polling I trust lead me to believe that about two in every three Republicans are America first or identify as America first Republicans, that means one of three uh, probably, you know, would rather things be as they were. Traditional um, establishment Republican in a modern intellectual conservatism. Um, but here's where I think the poll gains cred. You ready? Mm-hmm. Um, when you're running a campaign, let's use J.D. Vance, for example. J.D. Vance based a lot of his um, campaigning, and what I'm talking about, camp, the structure of the campaign. Um, based on Trafalgar's polling. Um, not just how are we doing, Trafalgar, but what issues are pertinent to the voters uh, in America today, in Ohio in particular. And when you start allocating $5 million, $10 million in resources based on what a poll says, you've got to have some trust in that pollster. I mean, you got to believe that he's telling you things that there aren't. nobody professes they're exactly right. I mean, let me ask you a question. Do you believe um, two weeks from Tuesday, this past Tuesday, that, that Russell Fry is going to get exactly 42.2% of the vote? Of course not. Mm-hmm. Nobody argues that. Do you believe Tom Rice will get 24.9%? Uh, no. I mean, they, you know, these aren't exactly right. But but you campaigns base spending their money on some of the, I don't know, information they gain from these pollsters. Um, and some of the internal polls, and you don't hear people discuss internal polls, a candidate, I'll give, I'll give you me as an example. I could go out on the campaign trail and run for the 7th Congressional uh, District Republican primary and believe that I understood what is near and dear to the voter's heart. And I go to the beach and I go to Chesterfield and I go to Darlington and I go to Hartsville and I go to, you know, everywhere in the district. And I speak about things that are near and dear to my heart. Polster comes back and says, look, man, I know those things matter to you. But the people you're trying to get to vote for you really don't consider them as much a priority. In other words, I could go out and, and speak 
about, you know, reverse interest rates and quantitative tightening and, you know, and think that I'm really, I'm nailing it. I mean, I, I know this quantitative <laughs> tightening up one side and down the other. I know this negative interest rate up one side and down the other. And the consultant says, you know where those are in the polling? They don't even list. I mean, they don't even rank. People want to know about inflation, the price of gas and, and the price of groceries. And, you know, I mean, what are you going to do to help them afford health care? I mean, they, these are some of the answers. So, so you know, c- campaigns create messages based on what the polling says. And I think to discount the poll, to, to say the polling doesn't tell us anything, it's absurd. The campaigns don't spend money for nothing. They spend money to gain uh, the, the consciousness of the voter. And, and I think, you know, Trafalgar's done a, a better than average job and, and probably better than most. Uh, my good friend Will Folks refers to um, Robert Cayley as the oracle. <laughs> That's kind of the ultimate compliment. Mm-hmm. That puts him in Berkshire Hathaway and, and uh, Warren Buffett's. Uh, I think the Oracle of Omaha is what Buffett is referred to very often in Wall Street circles. But, um, but I, you know, talking about quantitative tightening, uh, it's kind of interesting when you look at uh, what Jamie Dimon said yesterday. Uh, the, the CEO of J.P. Morgan said, basically, you know, I said six weeks ago there was a storm brewing. Now I believe there's a hurricane. Um, I read something last night that freaks me out. I mean, it, and, and, you know, I easily freaked out. I mean, I can I can become a conspiracy theorist. Something freaks you out? Well, I mean, it, it freaks me out. Because well, I mean, you've I, been freaking me out and bumming well, me I mean, out for a while. Okay, and, and now Diamond's beginning to say some of the same things. Now, he has a far more technical understanding of this than I do. But I want to hear what freaked you out. Well, I mean, here's what freaks me out. Quantitative tightening. I mean, the quantitative easing is when we pump liquidity in the, into the economy. Um, imagine this, Rev. If you won... $100 million lottery tomorrow. Are you more speculative in your spending? I mean, I mean, you know, if, if you've always wanted a ranch in Omaha, or excuse me, a ranch in Wyoming, I mean, wouldn't you be more inclined to go out and speculate on what that ranch... I mean, you all of a sudden got the luxury of having a lot of liquidity. I mean, you're a rich guy. You got $100 million bucks in the bank. You can buy what you want to buy, unless it's $200 million. Um, but, but, but the liquidity in your life allows you to be more speculative, take more risk, uh, and buy more stuff. Well, we've done that with the economy via quantitative easing. Um, and, and quantitative easing is basically pump more liquidity into the economy and allow the economy on average to be, and in the aggregate, to be more speculative. Uh, what, what do we do about it? I don't care if the house is, I don't care if I'm paying $10,000 more for the house. I got some money. You know, credit's cheap. I, you know, I'm, I'm probably paying $20,000 more for the house. But I mean, you know, the, I'm, I, I know the truck isn't worth this much. But I got this um, this government subsidy twice last year, and I think I'll get another one this year. You know, I'll just take that government money. I mean, how many people said that? How many people needed a new vehicle, got an extra eight or ten grand from the federal government during quantitative easing? And by that, I mean the COVID relief plan, the American Rescue, whatever you want to call it. I mean, people got money from everywhere. I mean, have friends of mine who have plenty of money got more money. You know, they don't need the money. They've got far more than I've got. They've got more than 99.5% of Americans, but they got even more. So why do you give a damn what that truck cost? Maybe that truck's worth 30 grand. They want 40 grand. Who cares? Government gave me 10 grand. So on average, the economy became more speculative. And and that, that manipulates and distorts supply and demand, GDP, and all these other sorts of things. So here's what the Fed is starting to do now. Uh, they announced yesterday quantitative tightening. Hmm. I mean, that means they're going to begin restricting. I was going to say, if it's the opposite of what quantitative mean? easing, and the idea of easing is what? What's the goal? 
then this would be the opposite goal, which we're, I mean, we're, we're going we're going to cut off some of the liquidity in the economy. And, and somebody said, well, how do you do that? I mean, I'm texting with someone last night. How do you do that? Um, the, the, the Fed has bought an enormous amount of U.S. treasuries and mortgage-backed bonds, um, securities, U.S. securities and mortgage-backed bonds. The, the Fed has gone from $3.8 trillion to, let's do this, Mike. Before we, I don't. This will take a while, but I want you to. I want you to stick with me for a second because, um, yeah, I care who the congressman is. I care who the mayor is. I care all these political matters. This is going to be um, unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. What? I'm serious. I mean, it's, it's unavoidable. Now, now you're freaking. Well, I mean, me it's, out. it's going to happen. I mean, there is no. Now, Reggie will be with us at seven, and he'll probably give some um, take on the economy from a stock market perspective. Um, I'm talking about. The realities of the economy, where you and I live, where we try to function, operate, and live, there's nothing to be optimistic about. It's the first time in my life that I've looked at some of these metrics, some of these measures, some of these financial realities, some of these economic situations and circumstances. There's not a single issue out there that I find encouraging. Now, I'm not Jamie Dimon. I mean, when Jamie Dimon speaks, everybody listens. When I speak, some of you do. I mean, it's morons talking to morons, I guess. Um, but, but, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> but, well, the blind leading the blind. That's less than sort of the blind yeah, leading the blind. Nice. How about that? Um, but, but no, when I, when I look at what the Fed is doing, and I, I'll read a question. Uh, excuse me, I'll read. Uh, well, let's do this. I don't want to get too far behind. Take a break. We'll be back on the other side. And I want to try to explain uh, the best I can quantitative tightening. And what I think it's going to eventually do in a real world way to um, and affect our lives for the next probably, I said 36 months. Diamond says 24 months. So, you know, bet on who you choose, me or Jamie Diamond. Wonder who wins that contest. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a minute. So let's talk about this real quick. I've got a couple of callers and we'll get there in two seconds. Bear with me. Quantitative tightening uh, was announced yesterday by the Federal Reserve. Now, once again, I'm on, I'm on the record. Abolish the Fed. That is the only chance we have at sound monetary policy moving forward. Is it radical? Uh, Washington would call it radical. Big business would call it radical. Um, the, the export industry would call it radical because they have ended up with all the money. I mean, all the COVID money that's been printed ended up in the coffers of government and, you know, the wealthiest, uh, you know, upper percenters to use Mike's um, <laughs> freeholds language there. But but quantitative tightening uh, was announced yesterday by the Fed Um now, now, it won't start until June 15 because that's when the first U.S. Treasury securities, uh, well, what they call runoff. In other words, they'll, uh, the securities will mature and they won't repurchase. So that money comes out of the economy. That's $15 billion. Now, they're capping the monthly tightening, uh, what I'll call runoff. I mean, that's their language, not mine. They're runoff at about $47.5 billion, $30 billion for treasuries, about $17.5 billion for mortgage-backed securities until September. Then the threshold uh, will double to about $95 billion. This compares to about $50 billion a month when the Fed performed a, what was it, a similar exercise from 2000, I think, 10 to 2017, trying to reestablish normalcy in, you know, the, uh, the economy after the great um, housing debacle of 2008-9, the subprime, the financial meltdown, when the world blew up, the big short. I mean, describe it however you choose to describe it. Um, but Fed Governor Christopher Walker, because I went back and read some of the Fed moments, uh, some of the meeting minutes yesterday, um, 
uh, Christopher Waller, he's a Fed governor, he said, and I quote, you ready? Um, that we're using a variety of models and assumptions that are highly uncertain. Wow. Wow. I mean, if, you, if you're uncertain about it, who the hell? Mm. I mean, who knows oh, what we're talking about <laughs> that here? Makes you, but, it gives you good confidence. Well, I mean, but, but go back to what I said uh, six months ago. The Fed has nearly 1,000 economists working for it. 85% of these economists are registered Democrats. Now, when I hear registered Democrat economist, you know what I hear? Keynesian economist. They don't believe that federal debt has any consequence. They believe that as long as the government controls the money supply and it basically backstops the government, it can print all it wants and have no consequence. Well, Jamie Dimon and yours truly uh, disagree with that. And here's the reason. Um, we're going that the Fed has expanded its balance sheet to about nine trillion dollars from about three point, I don't know, Rev uh, three point five or six or seven trillion in September of twenty nineteen to nearly nine eight point nine trillion dollars today. So it's I mean it's 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 as it's never been before. Uh, all in the name of helping us through COVID and, and paying people to not work and you know, allowing the government to spend money it doesn't have. That's radical. I mean, the, what the Fed is doing now is far more radical than abolishing the Fed. But here's what quantitative tightening does. It addresses uh, economic speculation. They won't say this. I'll say it for you. They want to aggressively um, force price depreciation on food, fuel, and housing. I mean, that's what they want to do. I mean, they, they're not going to say, hey, we want to figure out a way to make your house worth less today than it was yesterday. But that's what they're going to do. I mean, in this, in, this, in this speculative economy, when you pay too much for a home, too much for a car, doesn't matter. Everybody's got plenty of money. If you don't have it, call us. I mean, we'll send you some more. That's quantitative easing. So the, the, the opposite of quantitative easing is quantitative tightening. Um, we've not done this but twice in non-war times. Uh, we've done some quantitative easing and tightening to pay for wars. Um, but that we were on the gold standard, and there, there were some pretty creative things done there. This is, guys, I mean, this is the most irresponsible behavior our government has ever exhibited when it comes to financial matters. We've done some pretty dumb things, but as it relates to the economy, and I were trying to manipulate and distort realities of the economy, this is egregious, it's, um, it's reprehensible, it should be criminal. I mean, it honestly should be criminal. Janet Yellen admitted yesterday or the day before, you know, I messed up. I mean, I didn't see inflation coming as it has. I did. I mean, I, I didn't live in an academic setting yet, Yellen. I, I've not lived my life at a flight simulator like Janet Yellen. I've lived in the real world. And when you pump trillions of dollars in new liquidity into the economy, it becomes a very speculative economy. And speculation is reckless and careless. It's been rampant. It's been egregious. It's been absurd. It should be criminal what the Fed has done. But now they're going down the road of quantitative tightening because they know that they know where we're headed. There's no way to address the price of gas or, or food or, or housing unless we do something. So they're going to quantitative tighten. In other words, they're going to restrict the money supply. When these mortgage-backed securities and, and treasury securities come due, when they mature, that money is not going to be reinvested. That money comes out of the economy. So, so we're going to take, um, you know, five, 37, excuse me, 47 and a half billion dollars every month out of the economy until September. And then we're going to double that to about 95 billion. What their, what their goal is to get back to 3.8 trillion on the balance sheet. That's still an out of balance balance sheet, but it's not $9 trillion. This is why I think it takes roughly three years 
to get back to some semblance, but it's going to destroy the economy. The economic realities of taking that much liquidity out of a stimulated, remember, simply, simply put, I mean, I think everybody listening believes this, macroeconomic stimulus creates inflationary pressures that makes you poorer. I mean, that's just, that, that's the cold, hard truth of a capitalist economy. And despite us trying to create Keynesian outcomes and, uh, you know, classical liberalism and all these things are, are fun to talk about. And, and once again, the economists at the Fed might believe they live in, in a flight simulator, but they don't. I mean, what they've done, their experiments have caused rampant inflation that you and I and everybody listening to my voice have to deal with. But, but Jamie Dimon sees it. Jamie Dimon knows what's about to happen. But he knows we're about to destroy the economy. Um, I, I'll give you an example. I'd, I'd love to get Reggie on the record here, and I, I don't want to pin him down on that, but I'd, I'd love to know what Reggie believes the, the Dow will be a year from now. I mean, I think it's, I think the, um, I mean, if I were an odds maker, 20,000. Really? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's oh, the sort my. of sell-off it takes to get us back to a place of, of making sense of the realities of the economy. Mm. We, we've, we've, we've jacked the economy up. Now, there have been businesses and there have been government agencies that have gotten unbelievably wealthy during the printing of all this money. I mean, the money ended up where you would expect the money to end up, in the coffers of people who lobby the government. Because our government doesn't govern anymore. It kind of sells itself to the highest bidder. So if you had a lobbyist, I was talking to someone yesterday about mental illness. You know, we don't treat the mentally ill. We, 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 don't, we, don't, we don't care for those who have those sorts of challenges. It's one problem. The mentally ill's never hired a lobbyist. I mean, if the mentally ill, depressed, and addicted hired a lobbyist, and that lobbyist paid Congress to have fundraisers and, you know, all these other sorts of things, we would deal with the mentally ill, depressed, and addicted. But the mentally ill, depressed, and addicted don't have a lobbyist. You know, Goldman Sachs does. J.P. Morgan does. Uh, big business, corporate America do. Um, local governments um, state governments, all these entities and enterprises, they know how to squeeze the juice out of government. Our government is for sale. Some people know how to buy it. Some people don't. So if the mentally ill, depressed, and addicted were to hire the best lobbyists in Washington, go hire Perkins Coy. Michael Sussman's not in jail. He's not doing anything. Go hire Sussman. Put him to work. You know what we'll do? We'll allocate a tremendous amount of money to the addicted, mentally ill, and depressed. But, but until they get a lobbyist, they're not on the list. I mean, you know, they're not in the club. And that's the, the travesty in all this. Jamie Dimon knows it. Jamie Dimon can say it now because he squeezed all the juice out of this lemon at J.P. At, uh, Morgan. I mean, he, he, he played the game as well as anybody could play it. He's smart. He's shrewd. And he's, he's a capitalist. So if the government's going to print trillions of dollars, you know what Jamie Dimon's going to do? He's going to figure out a way to get his hands on as much of that money as he can because he's the president of a bank. He's not a congressman. He's not a senator. He's not a president. He's not the Fed chair. He's a banker. I mean, he is a shrewd capitalist. So Jamie Dimon sits down with J.P. Morgan and says, you're not going to believe what the Fed's about to do, but I have a responsibility to get as much of it as I can, so here's what we're going to do. Now, Jamie Dimon is probably short in the housing market because we're going to see a tremendous decline in the price of houses. I think we don't have a subprime problem, but we're going to have um, an asset depreciation problem. And we've seen, I mean, you've heard the stories, Rev, um, eight offers before dark, you know, sold the house for $50,000 over um, listing price. The, the absurdity of that. But once again, when the economy has that much liquidity, it can become very speculative. 
So we're dealing with a speculative economy that is trying to correct itself via quantitative tightening. And what they're telling you basically is we can't control the price of food, fuel, and housing. I'm just using those three as an example, unless we cut off the money supply. When you cut off the money supply, economic reality sets in, the market sells off, and and the economy begins to really, really struggle. Let's go to the phone. Here's Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. Hey, how y'all doing this Hey, Bert. Uh, I'm tell you what. Um, I'm thinking we're fixing to deal with the mentally ill in a way that nobody's really looking at, and that's going to be in these pleas of temporary insanity. Because think about this: this will cover everything from shoplifting all the way to these mass shootings. It's it's Biden's future. It's Biden's economy. It's a form of mental, um, you know, insanity, a temporary insanity. Because you look at it, especially like look at these last couple of shooters, they've been 18. Well, what's happening to 18-year-olds? Okay, they've spent the last two years with no future, no education, no socialization. It's enough to drive anybody mentally insane. I mean, think about that. So, I mean, it's turned me into a squirrel. You know, when I was a kid, it, where I lived, it was a normal thing to be possibly snowed in every year for about a month. You couldn't leave. So, any time in my house, there was three months of food stored up. And over the years, I've not I've not done that because, you know, the store's a mile away. I ain't worried about it. But I've turned into a squirrel again. I've, I've got enough food in this house. You can lock me in this house for four months, and I wouldn't miss a meal. So I think the mental aspect is becoming a serious problem for people. And, you know, I'm, I'm disabled. I don't need to get out. But these people that, that – don't have a life because of this, no wonder they're shooting people. No wonder they're going robbing stores. This is driving them crazy, and I think that's going to become a defense that's going to be used. Thank you, Bert. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. I want to read verbatim here what Jamie Diamond says, and then we'll go to our next call. I don't want to put words in his mouth. Um, I said there were storm clouds, but I'm going to change it. It's a hurricane. Right now, it's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. Everyone thinks the Fed can handle it. The hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. We don't know if it's a minor one or Superstorm Sandy. You better brace yourself. He knows exactly what's coming. It's Superstorm Sandy. I mean, there, there is no way around the economic realities that are headed our way. I'm sorry. I mean, I wish I were not the bearer of bad news. Somebody just sent me a one-word text. And I said, damn. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I mean, it, it's so obvious to me. And when Diamond says, we don't know if it's a minor one or Superstorm Sandy, but you better brace yourself. I mean, he knows exactly what's headed his way. Um, and he's gotten, un- or J.P. Morgan has gotten unbelievably wealthy during the printing of this money. Why? They know how to play the game. And it's not capitalism we're playing. It's government-induced and government-distorted uh, free markets. Let's go to the phone, then we'll take our break. Breeze, you're on the air. We're playing the fiddle while Rome burns, baby. Who caused the um, who caused the recession in 08? The government. Who's caused what's going on now? The government. We were talking about this before COVID, and everybody right now is driving here about Pleasant, just with a stupid grin on their face, and they have no clue, no clue what's going on. What good will it be if the prices go down and nobody has no damn money to buy it anyway, at any price? And again, Ken. I'm going to wear you out again with the same old, same old, but don't you think that if you and I 
and nobody sat there. Let's get the two smartest guys I know, KNR and Breeze, to figure out the economy. If you and I knew what was going on, don't you damn well know that those people at the Fed know exactly what they're doing. These guys have doctorate degrees over there. These guys are smarter than all of us put together, supposedly. They know exactly what they're doing. They aren't doing anything stupid. They know daggone well what they're doing. And then I'll get back to this whole thing with gun control. And, you know, Tucker Carlson was talking about it. But what? how many of the people that were telling everybody to wear masks, get vaccinated, and social distancing, social distancing actually did it? They one mayor that's done one damn thing good for this for any city in America. All of these politicians will all have bodyguards. All of these celebrities will all have bodyguards. All the CNN anchors and all them will all have bodyguards of high capacity magazines and assault rifles and everything else. We are getting treated just like the peasants used to get treated all over Europe and everywhere else, and we're too daggone are too daggone sissified to sit there and tell these politicians and the rest of them to go to hell and get rid of every daggone one of them and hold them all accountable as hard as we can. We're not raising near enough hell. That's why the guy in Canada is taking away all the goods, because he's scared to death that the Canadians are going are to just go nuts and, and, and take him and do him like they did daggone uh, Mussolini in Italy. Hang him upside down by his feet. I mean, the, the people need to go be angry, but they need to be angry. At, see, right there, they're trying to make us angry at each other instead of them, or be angry at Russia instead of them, or be angry about this, that, other. We need to be angry at the SOBs that are running this country, Republican, Democrat, and every bureaucrat out there. Any politician you see on either side, you need to tell him, why are you trying to destroy my life? That's what I was told him during COVID. What, what they gave you the right to destroy my life just because we elected you mayor? Should you be cutting a ribbon somewhere because you're too damn stupid to run a city? And you, these people are sure as hell too stupid to run a country. Or they are, well, I take that back. They know exactly what the hell they're doing, exactly what they're doing. And we ought to all be battered to hell about it. Thank you, Breeze. You are. I can tell that. <laughs> and, and fairly consistent on that on that front. Hey, let's take a break. Got a call. We'll get to that as soon as we get back. Quantitative easing is, is kind of like going out drinking that night. <laughs> Quantitative tightening is like the hangover the next morning. Oh, my goodness. And we're ending an era yeah. or entering an era of quantitative tightening. Their words, not mine. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hey, Larry. Good morning. I think I'm going to have to take my standard contrarian position and just say that one of the ways that I think that what we're experiencing right now is different from other times before is that everybody's saying it's going to happen. And I've never seen an economic uh, outcome that does what everybody says. If you go back and look during the housing crisis and you look and you go watch the Kramers and all those of the world, they were, bye, 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 bye. Nobody was saying it's fixing to all fall apart. A handful of people. I mean, it was so rare. We made a movie about the one guy who got it right, you know, in the big short. And here, everybody's saying it. And, and I think you're right. I, I'm sure Jamie Dimon is taking short positions in the housing market, and now he's praying to God he can make it happen. I am not as pessimistic about housing this time 
as I was last time. Um, the people that have mortgages this time generally have income, generally had good credit, generally had something to put down when they went into the house, even though they paid a lot for it. Do you think, I mean, just think of it this way. You're sitting on the fence. You're thinking about moving to South Carolina. Maybe you're going to move to a coastal region here in South Carolina. You're on the fence because the prices are really high, right? What are you going to do the minute the prices of housing drop 2 or 3 or 4 or 5%? What are you going to do? You're going to jump on that house. I don't. I think the demand is still there. And until the demand goes away, I don't think that we're going to see a full across every sector ginormous recession like a lot of people want to say. And I hate to say it, but I think a lot of the folks on the right are all too happy to predict it because right now somebody from the left is in charge. But I think they're rooting for it more than they're predicting it. Does that make sense? It sure does. I mean, I disagree with it, but absolutely. I mean, that's a that's a legitimate place to land. Um, the, the one exception I'll take is I don't think everybody's predicting it. Jerome Powell's still saying soft landing. Janet Yellen is still saying, you know, we've got this thing under control. The majority of CNBC and Bloomberg are saying, yeah, there's some things out there that need, we need to be concerned about, but it's not apocalyptic. I'm arguing that if this plays out, it could be apocalyptic. Um, you disagree, and I respect that. You know what I do, Larry. Oh, Thank no, you. No, I, I, no, I agree it could be. I, so my thing would just be, I think that if you were to ask Reggie or someone like that, they would just say, you need to have some form of hedge, but I don't think you need to just cut your throat and jump off the tallest building at the same time. Well said. Hey, Larry, we got to take a break. Hard break, top of the hour, back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I love it when Larry calls and uh, plays the role of contrarian. I think, you know, whenever you say something, a lot of times he'll call and contradict it and want to be the contrarian. And the, the interesting dynamic this time is he was kind of the happy contrarian because, you know, you're, you've been preaching a little doom and gloom on the economic outlook, and, and he had a little contrarian view to your view, but it was a little more sunny of an outlook then. But I think he enjoys the debate as much as I do. Oh, you know, you know I mean, I think if I'd said, this thing ain't going to be as bad as you think it is, I think he would have loved to say, yes, it is. This thing's going to be um, <laughs> unnerving. It's going to be devastating. It's going to be all of these other. Look, I, I don't know that I'm right. I mean, rest assured, I'm certainly not. I mean, I'm not the guy you need to listen to on, on these sorts of yeah, matters. I you're not right. Well, I mean, it, but, but, but I, uh, Larry said there, there's something about, you know, moving. What did I tell you during the break? You asked me, is there a silver lining? What was the silver lining I gave? That's exactly what Larry said. We mm -hmm. are in a destination plot. I mean, there's, a, there's a sentiment amongst Americans to move south and west. Um, climate, you know, uh, weather conditions and living near the coast. I mean, mm -hmm. I did say that would be, there's somewhat of a silver lining, but, but the macroeconomics are still in play. We have an overstimulated economy. I think Larry would agree with that. I think the majority of you agree that we have a, an overstimulated economy as a result of macroeconomic stimulus. That has led to inflationary pressures that has made gas more expensive, food more expensive, housing more expensive. Um, everything is more expensive today. So we're going, to, we're going to try to extract that stimulus from the economy over a period of time, um, $95 billion a month. We're going to take liquidity out of the economy. Do you believe the inflation immediately goes down? We're going to raise interest rates. I mean, if, if you're buying a $300,000 house at 3%, and all of a sudden you're buying a $300,000 house at 5.5% or 6%, is that house affordable any longer? You know the big winner in all of this? Imagine this, governments. Because point of sale dictates your, your sale, I mean, your ad valorem property tax. Um, 
The house was on the market for 300. There were multiple offers. Ended up selling for 375. The 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 tax roll now has that house valued at $375,000 because that's the point of sale as a result of Act 388. Um, so, so the bandits and all of this is going to be government. I mean, they're going to end up with <laughs> Once more money. Again, uh, all of a sudden, we take all of this liquidity out of the economy. Wow. We have significant price depreciation. I mean, I sound like I know what I'm talking about, and I kind of do. We're going to have significant, and Larry says we may not. I think we're going to have significant asset price depreciation. The problem with housing, you know, we argued a few weeks ago about Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. Is cryptocurrency an asset class? Um even Ben Bernanke now says it probably is an asset class. Um, we've looked at housing as an asset class. Housing is an asset. I mean, it's something you live in. My father always believed that housing was a liability. From the time you wake up in the morning to the time you go to bed at night, that housing costs you money. It's a day older. Uh, there's repairs that have to be made. Flush the toilet. It costs you money. Brush your teeth. It costs you money. My dad never convinced, never was convinced that a house uh, was an asset. Um, but we've treated housing in recent times as an asset class, investing in homes, you know, flipping homes and all these other sorts of things. I think we've distorted the housing market immeasurably by doing this. And it seems to me, Rev, that we're just uh, home ownership. I mean, Americans, for whatever reason, want a bigger and better home. And once things, you know, seem to be achievable, we kind of pull the trigger and, and make the move. And I, I just think we've been... Look, we can disagree on the nuances, and we can, I mean, Diamond knows this far better than I, and once again, it's interesting, he had nothing to say about financial stimulus when J.P. Morgan was playing the game, and Larry's probably right. You know what You know what? Jamie Diamond and J.P. Morgan are doing? They're, how, they're, they're shorting the housing market and trying to convince the market that it needs to be, it needs to be sold off. We need to see aggressive asset depreciation. I just don't see any other outcome. When you pump this much liquidity in the economy via quantitative easing, and it creates hyperinflation, and we have a problem that we believe we can address by taking that uh, liquidity back out of the economy, uh, it's going to be devastating. It's going to be devastating to economic activity, and I think it's going to be devastating to uh, the capital markets. That's just my personal hmm. opinion. Hey, don't want to do this. I know we got callers, and we'll get to that in just a second, but we want to go back. I mean, we had a world-class pollster on our show at 9.05 yesterday. We understand our listeners are kind of transition in and out. Those of you with us this morning may not be uh, with us uh, at 9.05. Those at 9.05 may not be with us at 7.30 in the morning. And we had an exclusive poll release yesterday on this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance that kind of sort of made national news. I mean, I had four or five members of the media reach out to me. Hey, what's your Twitter handle? You know, where can I get this poll that I hear was dropped on your show? Or And uh, so, so anyway, we're, we're going to play in its, in, its, in its entirety, if I'm not mistaken, Mike. Uh, Robert Cahaley, um, chief strategist of Trafalgar Group, um, broke news on our show yesterday by announcing uh, a the latest poll, and I think the, the most legitimate poll in the Republican primary for the 7th Congressional District. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll go to Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar, as he broke news on this feeble attempt at Radio Brilliance. Back in a minute of your choice. So without further ado, um, what does Trafalgar see as it relates to this race in our in our district? Well, let me give one big caveat, and that is a big caveat that what we are seeing around the country in some of these Democrat, uh, we're seeing a lot of Democrat participation in Republican primaries. 
Uh, we saw a tremendous amount in Georgia. Uh, we see that uh, big effort in Wyoming. We've seen it in uh, Arkansas. Uh, and so this is a snapshot of the Republican electorate, notwithstanding whether their Democrats might participate in the Republican primary. But that's worth noting because it's a very smart strategy on the Democrat parts, but they are doing this around the country with states with open primaries. Okay, good but deal. Among, among, among Republican uh, primary voters, uh, we have Russell Fry at 42.2, Tom Rice, 24.9, Barbara Arthur at 9.8, Ken Richardson at 9.6, uh, Garnet at Garrett, excuse me, Garrett Barton, 2.9, Spencer Morris, 2.1, Mark McBride at 1.5 and undecided at 7.0. Okay. So the undecided is only 7%. That's significantly lower than, than I imagined or expected. Is that lower than you imagined? And what do you think uh, What do you think accounts for that low number of undecideds? Well, we always tend to have a lower number of undecideds than others because we don't like to take undecided for an answer. We give you a couple times to make sure you're really undecided. Because people tend to say undecided when they know darn well who they're going to vote for. Um, and so we kind of nudge them along and say, all right, but if you had to say. <laughs> so we we don't expect there's a huge amount of undecided. Uh, th- this makes sense to us. This is not one that people are having a hard time to, uh, deciding which side of the fence they're on. It's just one that once they're on a side of the fence, they're either pro Tom Rice or they're anti Tom Rice. Then deciding among the other candidates is the only nuance left. Okay, interesting, Robert. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say two things. I'm gonna get your response to these two things. It seems to me impossible for Tom Rice to win a Republican primary with Republican primary voters, and it seems to me that and then a runoff is inevitable between Russell Fry and Tom Rice. Are those two certainly something you agree with? Um, I'm stating those from my perspective. Well, let's let's consider that it is not outside of the realm of possibility that with what may happen in the next couple of weeks, Russell picks up another few points and undecided break toward the guy Trump endorsed. We saw that with J.D. Vance, uh, and and we've seen that in some other in some of these other races where they they break very much so. There is there is an offside chance that Russell could win this without a runoff. It is more likely going to go to a runoff, and that is when I expect that you will see a significant effort from the Democrats to vote in that runoff. So the Democrats are more likely to vote in the runoff than they are in the in the January, excuse me, the June 14 primary. Yes. Um, mainly because they have their own primary. Correct. Um, and, you know, a competitive primary is not something that was on the other side of these other states by comparison. Uh, and it is certainly uh, the math that you have to consider. I mean, you take, for example, uh, Wyoming. There's only like 10% of people are Democrats. And there's a distinct possibility they're going to, they're going to vote at a higher percentage in the Republican primary than the Republicans are. <laughs> So it's a very small number. The numbers in Georgia, when it's all said and done, could be 
180,000 Democrats voted in Georgia uh, in the Republican primary. Robert, they, they, they wanted to punish Trump. Have you applied some of the math? I mean, in other words, what sort of Democrat turnout it would take in a runoff to get Rice over the top and get him reelected as a Republican? It's pretty odd that Democrats would decide the Republican nominee, but here we are. And I would imagine if you voted impeach Trump, you probably do have to depend on some of the Democrats. So, so first question, can a Democrat who votes in the June 14 Democrat primary come back and vote in a two-week-later Republican runoff? It is not legal. It will more than likely happen. Wow. Not enforced. Has not historically been enforced. Maybe it'd be good year to enforce it. Don't know. So what it's sort of enforced okay, what sort of enforced mechanisms what needs to happen for that illegality to be enforced? Somebody would have to keep track of it all and, and somebody would have to object to people who uh, vote in the second election. Uh, but you know it, it there, I mean, I'm not the one to speak to what the penalties are, uh, what that would involve, but uh, you know, there is there. There's no question you're not allowed to vote in one one primary and then the other primaries runoff. Now, if you vote in neither primaries first election, then you can vote in either party's runoff, and you, you can obviously vote in the one that you voted the runoff for the party you voted the first time. Uh, but it's not a strange thing in South Carolina to see this. We've seen it time and time again. Uh, and it's just – it's a major effort. It, it, listen, it's a good strategy on behalf of the Democrats. They're picking their Republican nominees. We just watched them do it in Georgia. And uh, it, it, it certainly is, is something they're work, working very hard to do in other states too. I mean, it, it, you know, Arkansas is playing – they were playing very much in those runoffs. And – I mean, they're overtly doing this. I mean, they're organizing and making it clear where they stand because in some of these places, they just find it – they'd rather have the Republican nominees they want. Interesting. Um, I want to go back to Atlanta because I, I, I discerned in you a, a level of frustration, some of the tweets you sent out, some of the comments you made um, You yeah. knew there were going to be Democrats vote in that gubernatorial uh, primary you just didn't think 180,000 were going to vote? Is that a fair accounting or assessment? It is. We actually was a little bit of debate within our team. Uh, they had only voted, the Democrats only voted 30,000 in the first, in the early voting, and early voting was almost 50% of the vote. So most of the models said 60,000. And so we were banking on 60,000 because that's what the models were telling us. There was a, there was a huge effort to do it, and as it you know, it worked out for us in the sense that uh, the Democrats mistakenly believe that Herschel Walker is their most votable candidate. They're wrong about that, but they've seen some of the stuff that he's had to deal with in his past with his mental issues, all of which he put in his own book about himself. So it's not anything hidden. Um, so it didn't really affect what we're doing in the Senate race. Uh, it just affected the governor, and you know, it was a scenario where. Uh, we had some things happen at the last with uh, Trump. There was some news articles about Trump was pulling out of Georgia, and a lot of the people on uh, Purdue side kind of gave up. They thought thought the, the Trump pullback was real. It wasn't completely real, and so and the Democrats were emboldened. And yeah, it was it was a big surprise, and and it was wild to see that uh, most of y'all who followed this stuff, especially the ones online, to see. Um, 
Matt Towery and um, uh, Barris, uh, who is the people's pundit, run the big data poll. All three of us had roughly the same numbers. And this Democrat turnout just made it from like a 12 to 13 point win to a, you know, 40 something point win. And uh, it was kind of a surprise. I mean, we all thought that Kemp was going to win without a runoff. It was just a matter of it was wider than anyone thought it would be. Uh, any of any of us thought it would be, and uh, you know we've have the best record for getting that stuff right. So uh, we stand on what we did in Alabama. We had the best poll in both Alabama Senate and Alabama Governor, and in the uh, the Senate race in, in um, Georgia. But that Democrat turnout definitely skewed the uh, governor's race for us. How complicit are the establishment Republicans? in organizing or helping orchestrate Democrat turnout in Republican primaries because it's isolated to the Trump candidates. Is that a fair account? I mean, it looks to me like the Democrat turnout is geared toward making sure Trump's candidates don't get elected. How complicit is the Republican establishment in in organizing this? Well, first of all, it's not always isolated at the Trump candidates. Sometimes it's isolated at they want two things. If they can punish a Trump candidate by beating him, yes, they want to do that. But if they can promote a Republican they think they're more likely to beat, they also want that. So it, it's a mix of trying to pick the Republicans they think they can beat and the, and the Republicans who, who will kind of uh, punish Trump. And I would tell you that my experience in Georgia is that I would not say the Republicans were complicit. I would say that – Stacey Abrams is probably smarter than most of the Republican operatives that in Georgia put together, and she figured out what she wanted to do. And this is this is how she was going to have the Republican ticket that she wanted, uh, which would leave a great deal of Republican animosity within the party, because if Trump candidates all win everything and then the party comes back together, they have a much harder time in the fall. If the Trump people are still kind of fighting amongst themselves and mad at the, some of the nominees, then you have Republican turmoil. And that's exactly what they got. So I, would, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't blame the Republican establishment so much there. Uh, in Wyoming, I would blame some of the Republican establishment. And in South Carolina, the jury's still out on whose fault it will be. Robert, is this the first meeting or the first contest that includes a Trump-endorsed candidate and someone who voted to impeach Donald Trump? I'm trying to think. I think it might be. By my accounting, it is, but you know this world much better than I. I mean, I I, I know we had the um, the West Virginia consolidated race, but but the 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 two incumbents in a consolidated district, one was endorsed by Trump, but the other voted for the formulating of the January sixth committee. Didn't vote for the impeachment. I think this is the first uh, we've seen of a Trump right. endorsed candidate and a and a Trump excuse me someone who voted to impeach a Republican who voted to impeach Donald Trump. Right. I, I, I think so. I think it's more. Yeah, I think the other one was kind of like the situation with Mace that they voted for the committee, but they didn't. But they either weren't there or did not vote for impeachment. Uh, last question. I'll let you get out of here. Once again, appreciate your time. Robert Cahaley Trafalgar is on the phone with us. Um, you nailed J.D. Vance. In fact, J.D. Vance gave you a shout out in Ohio. Um, you nailed Dr. Oz or looks to be you nailed. I mean, maybe not. Uh, we don't know yet, but it looks to me like I'd rather go in a recount with more votes than not. Um, Arizona. And the reason I'm interested in Arizona, Robert, is um, the Peter Thiel effect. I mean, the, you know, the, the funding of the super PACs. He funded J.D. Vance in Ohio with an America First agenda. Blake Masters in Arizona is kind of a Thiel acolyte. 
How influential is Peter Thiel in this America First movement, and what chances do Blake Masters have in Arizona? I mean, Peter Thiel's very, very uh, influential, but there are other factors at play. Uh, Ohio, who wins? You know, you're going to hear all this nonsense about it's going to be a real contest in the fall. I don't buy it. Ohio is not a purple state anymore. It's red. On the other hand, Arizona is purple. And so this notion that you're going to get somebody who is going to be – that the best candidate is necessarily Masters, that, that's, there's a lot of Republicans who debate that. Because, uh, again, this person has to beat um, a guy who beat a Republican to get there. I mean, when you, when you look at the way that that went down – Last time, uh, there was actually an overlap vote between Kelly and Trump, uh, about three points uh, when, he, when he beat McSally. So you've got uh, – Arizona's a different kind of place. You know, it's Barry Goldwater. It's John McCain. It's um, – uh, you know, you, you've even got what, what's going on with, with the other senator, Cinema, who's, who's one of those kind of a maverick that uh, doesn't always do what a party wants. So – I would tell you the, you know, to kind of quote Sarah Palin being paraphrased by Saturday Night Live, the the more mavericky one is probably the one <laughs> that I think stands the best chance. And so, whether that's going to whether that will be seen as um, uh, Masters is not clear, and I think in that one in the end with. Uh, President Trump making his endorsement in the governor's race, and she started to walk away with it. I think you got three guys at the top. I think the last time we looked at it, that Lamont guy was in first, uh, and then the Attorney General Brnovich was uh, in second, and and uh, Masters was third. So, but they were all within like two or three points of each other. We're gonna we're back in the field there later this week, so we'll know more. But I think if if Trump puts his finger on that thing. Wherever he goes, that person's going to win. But what Trump, Trump has proven, um, and I think he proved this very well in uh, Ohio as well as Pennsylvania, is he's thinking about general elections. He doesn't want to ever have somebody come back and say, well, you picked somebody who couldn't win the general. His argument with Vance and his argument with Oz was these are the guys who will win the general. So I think – his Trump's pattern, I can't ever say what Trump will do because I'm not in his head. He makes decisions that I don't understand, but he, but he also, you know, he, he has a gut instinct that is pretty good compared to most politicians. So he'll decide what he decides, but his pattern would suggest that he'll go with the candidate who's most likely to win the general. And I'm not sure in that case that's necessarily uh, the Teal candidate. Robert, last question. Is the Trump factor still the most powerful force in Republican politics today? Oh, no question. I mean, when he gets – I mean, there are always going to be – there are always going to be problem races. There are going to be people who, you know, didn't really have a chance or, 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 you know, they got it, they made him endorsement too early, things like that happen. No, but when you look at it, uh, up and down the ticket. I mean, you know, even you take Georgia. I mean, he had lieutenant governor uh, and U.S. Senate, and two of the candidates he endorsed uh, made their runoffs for Congress. You know, you look and and the uh, Arkansas. He had a clean sweep of governor and Senate, 
And even a guy that he backed off of for the U.S. Senate did make the runoff in Alabama. So it's just, yeah, there, you know, there's, there's going to be a few David Perdue's of the world. Um, nice guy, just didn't really catch on. And, you know, we talked earlier about that, that death knell is China. They hit David early, hard, very hard on China. And, man, when, that, when they tie you to China, it's just hard to win an election. We'll explain. Robert, thank you for your time, my man, and thank you for that um exclusive. that exclusive um, polling report. We really appreciate it. Um, and the um, the vinegar-based barbecue and the mustard-based <laughs> barbecue and the Jefferson's Ocean bourbon will make its way to your um, humble domain here sooner than later. Yeah, just hold the vinegar. Send me double on the, on the mustard. <laughs> double, <laughs> double on the mustard and Jefferson's Ocean on the way. Thank you, Robert. <laughs> Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I want to go back to something Robert got said. a lot to say today, man. Well, I, 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 I paid attention to something he said during the interview when we just played it back. It was it was, it was aired live yesterday morning in the nine o'clock hour. Just played it back so uh, uh, listeners this time could hear it. But he talked about the crossover Democrat voter. So the Democrats have a primary on the same day. Uh, once they vote in the Democrat primary, if they choose to vote in the Democrat primary. They are not supposed to then come back and vote in a Republican runoff if there is one, right? That is illegal. That That's is illegal. against election law in South Carolina. But Robert said there's really not a good way to track that, so it could happen. Well, I mean, you're trusting the Democrats, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, and, and what that reminds me of is when he came on this show right before the 2020 election and gave the polling information about Pennsylvania and what he said about the Trump you know, Trump was ahead in the polls. He expected it to win, but he said he has to win by three or four points. And, and his words were to beat the Chiefs. Yep. He called that beforehand. I mean, he said on these air, on this radio show, that Trump's up by two percentage points in Phil- Excuse me, in, in Pennsylvania, but that won't be enough. He better be up by three or four. I mean, I remember the numbers yeah. well. And he said he better be up by three or four. And you're exactly right. He said to beat the Chiefs. Um, and we know how Pennsylvania played out. We know the Philadelphia effect. Um, you know, how many Democrats, I mean, the, the, um, the, 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 the rye supporter will call these people crossover votes. I mean, they're Democrats and, uh, we have open primaries in South Carolina they're trying to influence the Republican. Sure. And, and I, I think he made a very valid, um, argument that there, there are two reasons you do that. Um, one is to punish a controversial figure like Donald Trump, uh, with his endorsed candidate, make sure his endorsed candidate does not win. The other is to choose your opponent. Uh, in other words, if you don't have a runoff, and this is really what you get when when one party so dominates the state's uh, political world, the, the Republicans dominate South Carolina politics in a way they never have before. So the Democrats can really kind of cross over and vote in Republican primaries to goof things up. You know, we're talking about quantitative easing and tightening, manipulating or distorting the true marketplace. Um, I've said it. I'll say it again with all due respect. There is no way Tom Ross wins a Republican primary with Republican primary voters. Period. I mean, I stand by that comment. There is enough uh, Democrats in this district who could potentially cross over, influence the outcome of that election. But Robert's point is the Democrats have primaries. So the Democrats are more likely to vote in their primary, except when the runoff comes around two weeks later. That's when the argument is they're breaking election law by having voted in the Democrat primary on June 14th. Two weeks later, um, do we have rosters? Do we have registrars? Do, do we have um, poll watchers? Um, how do we cross-reference names? Uh, when someone goes to the poll two weeks after June 14, what, June 28, 
and says, I want to vote in the Republican runoff. I mean, what's your name? Show me your ID. No, you can't. You voted in the Democrat primary. Uh, do you trust the Democrats to be honest and candid and forthright on that uh, self-dealing? I mean, I don't. But, but you're right. Because Haley lives in this world. This is how he makes a living, giving advice to campaigns and, and I don't know, painting the political picture that, that lies ahead. Um, I, I'm not saying the poll's right. I don't, I don't have any idea how accurate the poll is. I know the margin of error is, what, three and a half? percent there's a 95 percent um accuracy rate that's kind of within uh i think his polls are three and a half might be 3.7 percent um with margin of error one way or the other you know uh i don't think you believe russell fry is going to get exactly 42.2 percent of the vote Mm -hmm. and tom ross is going to get exactly 24.9 percent of the vote but that poll shows me exactly what i expected it to show um there's a strong trump bias in this district the incumbent is at 25 percent that means 75% of Republican primary voters in this district are not going to vote for the guy, not Tom Rice. Remember this, Reb. This is not voting against Tom Rice. This is voting against the guy who voted to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, that's just, uh, you know, uh, uh, Tom Rice's wife is doing an ad on our airwaves right now that says, you know, you may disagree with that one vote. That was a big vote. I mean, that was a tremendously important vote. And the only reason we're having a contested race in the 7th Congressional District is that single vote. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, um, a candidate race. This is an issue race. This is a, an America First movement that wants to punish someone who voted to impeach their fearless leader. That's the way it is. Um, that's the way it's going to be. And we'll see um, how many Democrats successfully cross over in the runoff to get Tom Rice to 50%. Is it achievable? Yeah, I mean, there are enough Democrats in this district to do that. Um, but how many have voted in the primary and then cross over to vote in the, uh, in the runoff? I don't have any way of checking the books. Do you? Back in a minute. Hour number three on a Thursday morning, 843-661937 is our number. Um, and I have with us a guest, and the, the guest is an American economist, political commentator, gun rights advocate, um, Dr. John Richard Lott. Junior, Dr. Lott, good morning. How are you? Yeah, thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm a researcher, not an advocate per se, but I appreciate well, you having me on. Fair enough. I am reading verbatim uh, so some of what um, Fox News gave me. I don't want to ask you this. If you're yeah, a, well, um, I probably looked at Wikipedia. They just cut Wikipedia is a mess. But anyway, <laughs> okay, ahead. fair, fair enough. Um, uh, anyway, I want to get your take on this because I think there's some confusion abounding. Uh, the White House press secretary yesterday said that, and I quote, um, he does not support a ban on the sale of all handguns. Um, that's a pretty extreme position to hold uh, in deference to the Second Amendment. But but I think a lot of um, Second Amendment advocates, gun owners, people who believe that um, that right shall not be infringed upon are, are feeling a little bit threatened by the events of Uvalde, Texas, and the, I don't know, the, the leftist movement in America toward gun ownership, if we know the president does not support a ban on the sale of all handguns, do we have any idea what he does support? Where is his mind? Where Where is this debate headed? Well, it's not clear uh, to me w- whether he supports a ban on handguns because he's made the statement multiple times and then his press secretary or whatever tries to clean up and say, well, he didn't really mean what he said. I mean, obviously, people are keying off of his comments on Monday. Uh, where he was talking about banning all 
handguns that had calibers of 9 millimeters on on up. That's 88% of handguns in the United States fit that. But uh, there's uh, many statements uh, earlier this year and last and during the campaign where he made similar things. So, for example, uh, last year uh, he made a statement, the idea that you need a weapon that has the ability to fire 20 shots or more from that weapon whether it's a 9mm pistol or whether it's a rifle, is ridiculous. I'm continuing to push to eliminate the sale of those things. Or um, uh, in 2019 during the campaign, he was saying, why should we allow people to have these weapons, including pistols, with 9mm bullets and can hold 10 or more rounds? So, you know, there are a number of statements where he talks about if, uh, if a gun can hold 10 or more rounds, we should ban it. The thing is, all semi-automatic guns, and about 85% of handguns sold in the United States are semi-automatic, can hold a magazine, and they can hold a magazine of any size, you know, whether it's 10 bullets or 12 or 20 uh, or more. And, uh, you know, so he's pretty clear. But, it, look, it's not just these statements that he keeps on making over and over again, and I could, I have other ones that I could quote from him on this. But... Uh, it's his regulations and stuff that he's putting forward. So he has this so-called zero-tolerance policy for gun sellers, whereas if they have any paperwork mistakes on any of the multiple forms that they have to handle all the time for gun sales, have any paperwork mistakes, no matter how trivial, no matter how inconsequential, uh, he wants to put them out of business. And they put thousands of gun sellers out of business in just the last, you know, five, six months or so. Um, and they're going to be doing more than that. I mean, if I were to go to your radio station and say, look at the last 15 years of paperwork, do you think I could find one tiny paperwork mistake in it? Should we put you out of business uh, if we found something like that going back? But, you know, and there are other things. He wants to change the liability rules so that, Gun makers and gun sellers are responsible for any harm that results from their product. He, he keeps claiming that you can't sue gun makers and gun sellers at all, and that's simply false. If they sell a defective product and somebody gets hurt, they can get sued. If they don't obey the law in terms of how they sell a gun, in terms of, let's say, doing a background check and a crime's committed and some harm occurs, they can get sued. But what he wants to do is make it so that if anything happens, uh, you know, they're, they're liable. So, for example, let's say you applied it to cars. Should Ford Motor be liable if somebody gets to an accident because they're texting or because they're talking to somebody and not paying attention? Should they be liable for all medical costs, for all lost wages, for all pain and suffering? Could you imagine what that would do to the car industry and the cost of cars if they were to go and have those types of rules that are there? But that's what he wants to do for for gun makers and gun sellers. And that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the different types of regulations that he's putting through with executive orders. Dr. Lott, do we trust the Republicans? Do you personally trust the Republicans to safeguard the Second Amendment? Well, look, uh, there's diversity in terms of the views that are there. I don't think that they're going to pass the types of crazy laws that uh, Biden's talking about doing. Look, I want to do something about violent crime. I want to do something about these mass public shootings, but I want to do something that will really matter. So Biden, when he talks about violent crime, 
he he talks about only gun crime. I, I think few people realize that less than 8% of violent crime has anything to do with guns. But yet that's his complete focus. You look at his uh, four major addresses he's given on violent crime. He's mentioned police four times in those talks. And it's always in terms of even the police enforcing gun control. He doesn't mention prosecutors not enforcing laws against violent criminals. He doesn't mention over half the inmates being released from prisons and jails. He doesn't mention, uh, you know, the bail reform. He doesn't mention the cuts in police budgets or restrictions on how police are able to go and do their job. All those things have made it less risky for criminals to go and commit crime. But his focus, if you read through those talks that he's given or listen to them, has been on guns. And, and you know, the way you reduce all crime, gun crime or the 92% plus that doesn't involve guns, is to make it risky for criminals to commit crimes. And with regard to mass public shootings, you know, his big thing is background checks on private transfers of guns. I want someone to point to one mass public shooting this century that would have been stopped if such a law had been in effect and had been perfectly enforced. Uh, you know, I could go through his other things, but look, there is something we can do, and that is these attacks, these the successful attacks keep on occurring in places where guns are banned. The school shooting in Texas. 30% of schools in Texas have teachers and staff carrying guns. Unfortunately, the Robb Elementary School wasn't one of them. You have 20 states that have teachers and staff carrying guns at K-12 through schools, but yet you know, we've had a number of attacks since 2000. We've looked at all school shootings, and not one school shooting has occurred where anybody's been injured or killed at any of the schools where teachers and staff have guns. I think it makes a real difference whether you have a sign in front of the school that says this school is a gun-free zone, or you have a sign that says warning, select teachers and staff carry guns concealed, and we'll use them to go and protect the students or others that are here. Dr. Lott, you founded uh, the Crime Prevention Research Center in 2013. You obviously are well-versed in the statistics and research side of gun ownership and how they contribute or not to, to violent crimes. How can, the, how can the public become aware of some of the statistics? I mean, we hear sound bites, and we watch the horrific events in Uvalde, Texas, but, but it's, obviously, it's obvious you've committed yourself um, to understanding better the research, the analysis of gun ownership, and it's um, the, the likelihood that a, a legal gun owner commits an act of... I mean, how can we, the people, become more versed and informed so we do articulate better an argument in defense of the Second Amendment? Right. I mean, I was working in the Department of Justice up until January last year. I was senior advisor for research and statistics, uh, and I've held, held other similar positions. But look... Uh, that's the reason why a group of academics and myself have put together the Crime Prevention Research Center. You can go to crimeresearch.org, crimeresearch.org, and it has very detailed breakdown, uh, you know, goes through and talks about how these mass public shooters explicitly, you know, from the Buffalo shooter on back, talk about going after victims in places where they know the victims can't defend themselves. They want to pick gun-free zones because they, they want to get more media publicity, and they know they get more media publicity the more people they kill, and they know they'll kill more people if they go to a place where the victims can't defend themselves. Um, 
you know, what people don't understand. So like a lot of the gun control people say, well, see, a good guy with a gun doesn't help because the Buffalo grocery store shooting, there was an armed guard there in uniform and he wasn't able to stop it. What they don't understand is what an impossible job people in uniform have if they're by themselves and stopping these attacks. These attackers have real tactical advantages. If you have somebody in uniform, it's kind of like they're just standing out there with a neon sign that says, shoot me first, because these killers know if they can kill the, the officer or the person in uniform there, the, who's the only person with the gun, then they're going to have free reign to go after other people that are there. And, you know, it happens time after time. I can show you lots of statements from past mass murderers like this, who, just like the Buffalo guy, who consciously write or talk about going to a place where they know victims are not able to have guns because the law-abiding citizens will obey the rule. The criminal banks on that. And that actually serves as a magnet then for these criminals going and doing the attacks in those places. That is very well explained. Dr. Lott, we appreciate your time, um, and we hope to speak to you again. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's kind of a a very academic dissertation. Uh, Guy says, I mean, I like a guy that says, I'm not an advocate. I'm a researcher. And I like the fact that he said, you know, fellow academics and I got together and, and tried to evaluate you know, the realities. I'm not talking about the, the political thunder, you know, the um, the soundbite, the the catchphrase, what the Republicans said or, or the Democrats said, some of the profound realities. I'll give you a couple of statistics here that I've read recently. Um, less than 1% of homicides in America today are committed by someone with an assault rifle. I mean, we hear assault rifle, weapons of war. I mean, I heard this over, I think, 67 times uh Yesterday, and that was the day before yesterday. Today is Thursday. I get goofed up with Memorial Day. Tuesday, um, apparently the media got their memo when the the the, the soundbite weapons, of, weapons war, of war that was sixty seven times was, point. was said on some of the uh, some of the national newscast. Um, but when you hear a researcher um, juxtapose the one percent of all murders in America, homicides in America committed by someone with an assault rifle, eighty seven percent are committed by someone with a previous violent offense. We're not incarcerating violent people. You know, I think about the regrets I have in my political life. I was kind of sort of a spokesperson for sentence leniency. And and I guess the reason I was for that, Rev, is as a member of county council, I can remember um, the sheriff's department having people out there. I think I've told these stories. I know I've told you before. Someone being incarcerated in the county jail, quote, unquote, for 240 days because they were uh, they wrote three bad checks. Um, I understand you're breaking the law, and there has to be a debt to society that you pay. But but I just don't know that we need to incarcerate people for that long a period of time for that sort of offense. There, there's some other way to to pay back society. There's some other way to make retribution um, other than being incarcerated, child support, and some of these other. I mean, those aren't violent offenses. Eighty-seven um, percent of all homicides in America are committed by someone who has a previous violent offense. And we've gotten far too lenient with sentencing of violent offenders. I do think we should categorize, and I mean, I know we do this, and I think there are guidelines and, and, and you know, guardrails in place for magistrates and judges and courts and, and law enforcement, but I think we've got to get serious about locking people up that have demonstrated a willingness to hurt other people. 
I mean, Tucker does this probably as well as anybody. I mean, these videos of New York and Chicago and, and San Francisco, it's just as random as can be. I mean, it is completely and totally random. I mean, there was a day, I mean, I'll use the mafia as an example. I mean, the, the hit, you know, the guy walks out of a nice restaurant in New York City. Well, I mean, there, there was a hit made. I mean, there, there was a hit uh, commanded or, or made on uh, one of these mafia bosses or underlings in the mob. But it, it, it appeared to be random because it's in a restaurant on the street. But there's no, no randomness at all about it. I mean, it was intentional. It was uh, orchestrated. It was organized. It was um, uh, somebody had to be a I mean, you know, you know where I'm headed. But, but it's almost like these, these cities now, um, you walk around half afraid. I mean, you're really nervous because uh, you don't have to have a bullseye on your back. You don't have to be a, you know, a, a gang member or a drug kingpin or someone who's trying to stake their territory out. I mean, we know that happens in the real world, especially in some of these urban areas and urban settings. But it's it's pretty scary to know that you can just simply be walking around minding your own business and here comes someone with a gun uh, or a knife or some other sort of, uh, I don't know, device that they wish to, to cause harm. And that's just... I mean, it happens far too often, and I understand it's it's infrequent and it's ran, it's rare, but it, it's not as rare and random as I wish it was. And uh, when when I think of my family out and about, uh, that there was for for an extended period of time in my life, Rev, it, it didn't concern me. I mean, it concerned me that they'd get in a car wreck or they'd get you know. But but when when I, I account for that now, I mean, there's something about I don't know my interpretation of the way things are that that it makes me a little bit nervous when i know my one of my family members is walking around on a street somewhere because i just think we have these random examples of of violence perpetrated by people who have committed acts of violence before and have received very lenient sentencing let's go to the phone here's brian in florence good morning brian hey good morning our very own senator lindsey graham and uh, Senator Blumenthal, from whatever state he's from, came out publicly last night and said that they're very close on gun con- uh, legislation, predominantly red flag laws, and uh, increased background checks that may include private sales. So to all the listeners that truly believe the Second Amendment shall not be infringed, it's probably time to blow Lindsey's phone up today. Let him have it. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. I actually had three people reach out to me yesterday wanting to know what Lindsey Graham's phone number was. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, he's got a field office in Florence. He's got a field office in Greenville. I think he's got one in Columbia. Obviously, he's got an office in Washington. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I think Lindsey's a part of what he would argue is trying to find a better way forward and a solution uh, to some of these um, some of these tragic um, killings in schools and supermarkets. Um, I just go back to I don't know, and I wish I did. But I don't know of any gun legislation we can pass that makes us safer. I mean, I really and truly don't. I'm going to abolish guns. I mean, is that where we're ending up? I mean, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's encouraging to know that at least President Biden does not support a handgun, excuse me, a ban on the sale of all handguns. But Dr. Lott said, uh, maybe he does. Maybe he does. I mean, maybe he wants gun ownership to be abolished in America today. But there's a little bit of um, respect I have for Michael Moore. Michael Moore's the only liberal Democrat that will come right out and say, I want to abolish the Second Amendment. The rest of Democrats really aren't gutsy enough to say what they really mean, and that is we don't like the Second Amendment, we've never liked the Second Amendment, and I'll tell you the reason liberals don't like the First and Second Amendment. What We tried to preach on this a little bit last week. The First and Second Amendment uh, empower people. 
the right to say what it is you choose to say without fear of punishment, the right to keep and bear arms. That right shall not be infringed upon to shoot snakes while you're squirrel hunting. Hell no. To defend yourself, your family, and your property from intruders, criminals, or a tyrannical government. I mean, read the Heller case. I mean, read the Scalia opinion in the Heller case. Um, he argues that the, 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 the Second Amendment is not absolute, but shall be not infringed upon means about what it says. And, and I think, you know, Scalia supported some level of restraint. In other words, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. I mean, we've established that as societal norm, but, but Scalia was very, uh, very, very direct in arguing that this is not about gun ownership being for shooting snakes while someone decides to go squirrel hunting. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Hey, Brian was talking about the, um, the Lindsey Graham, um, Richard Blumenthal, I think Senator Blumenthal of Kentucky, excuse me, Connecticut. Ain't no Democrat in Kentucky. Um, <laughs> but, but he's a Democrat. He's a Democrat from Connecticut. Um, from what I've gathered, and, and I read a little bit about this last night, probably should have known more, but, um, but Graham, John Cornyn of Texas are the two Republicans. Um, Chris Murphy, if I'm not mistaken, is one of the Democrats. And then um, Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. Here's my concern. Um, my concern is um, that a lot of this is based on red flag laws. Um, I think 19 or 20 states have red flag laws. And um, what sort of um, evidence is required to go get a uh, an injunction or a, a, a I don't know a rev a um, uh, law enforcement of the authority if given a court order to temporarily take a gun away from someone uh, who may or may not hurt themselves or others I mean that's just, that's the you know uh, the definition of a red flag law is allowing law enforcement the authority to get a court order to temporarily take the gun away from someone that they deem irresponsible or dangerous but when you go to connecticut and i pulled this study up i knew there was a study out there somewhere and this is what concerns me about dealing with with blumenthal of connecticut um in connecticut there's been a study done that argues that for every 10 to 20 guns removed in connecticut saved one life i mean i can we can post a study but um when i saw the name richard blumenthal uh, my mind went to that study i mean and here's the busy head syndrome in action uh Blumenthal, Connecticut, in where that in that where that study was commissioned that kind of created an outcome. I mean, you know, how studies are. Um, we'll pay you this much money to make sure the numbers show. Uh, it's called spin, is what it's called in politics. Mm-hmm. But in research, it's it's buying an outcome is what it is. But um, that that makes me nervous. Now, now Lindsey's plenty smart. I, I know he's uh, you know he's got a one foot in the America First camp and one foot in the establishment camp. Um, but, but Lindsay's always the guy that we have a love hate relationship with. Um, some of you out there are going love, hate. no, I hate him. I mean, I don't have any use for him. Never, never have, never will. But, but the, the concern I have, and if I, if, if Senator Graham were on the phone with us or sitting in the studio, I would say, Senator Graham, you're dealing with Richard Blumenthal of Connecticut. Do you know that Connecticut has a study that argues, um, every 10 to 20 guns taken off the street in Connecticut have saved one life. So you just you, you got to be concerned about where Bloomingthal is coming from um, because he helped commission and advance the study. But but the central argument they're making 
is to um, give law enforcement the authority when given a court order to go take the gun away from someone who may be dangerous to themselves or others. Now, here's what I would argue, and here's the question I would ask. What is the evidence? I mean, if law enforcement has the authority given to them via a court order, what was the court order's evidence? Is it abstract? Is it is it inexact? I mean, is there, uh, you know, do you have to be uh, diagnosed clinically depressed or, or you know, uh, mentally ill? What is the evidence there? See, that's where we get into the gray. Who has a right to say you're crazy? Who has a right to say you're dangerous? Who has a right to say are you depressed to the point of being? I mean, I understand the debate. I think it's a very warranted and legitimate debate. But who has the right to say this is compelling enough evidence to give law enforcement the authority via court order to go take your gun away from you? Uh, you may or may not be a threat. You may or may not be a danger and menace to society. But I've always been concerned about who gets to say what the evidence is. What is the threshold for evidence? So, and, and I'm real, real leery and suspicious of a Democrat, Democrat uh, from Connecticut. I'm sorry, <laughs> Lindsay. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just always concerned when a Southern Republican begins bipartisan negotiations with a Northeast liberal. I, I just don't trust those son of a guns, um, and especially if he's affluent. I don't know Blumenthal's past. He's had some some issues with the truth, but yeah, wasn't he the stolen valor guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's had some issues with getting the facts straight, but he's. You know, he's the typical senator from Connecticut. He's, uh, what, 137 years old, and people that old tend to forget and, and get lost in the uh, in the story. But um, uh, let, let's, you know, I, we try to reach out to Lindsey and get him on the show here. Um, let's try to do that again because he's in the news as part of this bipartisan uh, conversation. It's not a committee, and a lot of this is behind the scenes. CBS News has reported that a source says – you know, they're trying to work through some of these um, some of these red flag laws. But once again, I understand the concept of red flag law. I mean, I get it. I mean, if somebody out there has a gun, that they're, 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 they're mentally ill, they're depressed, there's something going on in their life, they could be a danger or not. Um, who gets to say what is evidence enough for law enforcement to get a court order and go confiscate that person's gun? You got to be careful going down that road, especially when you're bartering with a senator who has a commissioned study in his state this says for every 10 to 20 guns taken off the street in Connecticut, they saved one life. I mean, what is the motivation there? 40 guns save two lives? 80 guns save? I mean, who's not for saving lives? So let's go confiscate guns. Uh, what is the evidence? Doesn't matter what the evidence is. Guns are bad. I mean, that's where the Democrats are today. And I would be real suspicious in faith, uh, good faith negotiation, especially a Democrat from Connecticut. Let's go to the phone. Here's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Lindsey Graham is proof that uh, Democrats cross over Republican primary. But anyway, you were talking about this gun. You can read all kinds of statistics. I read a report from the government that said more people are killed each year with a hammer than with a long gun, a rifle. So... Joe Biden says he's not in favor of of hardening schools or putting weapons in 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 the schools. So you know, I don't understand what that's all about. But going back to uh, Trafalgar and uh, what he was talking about this morning, I listened to it the first time, and I didn't pick up on it. But like Dave, he picked up something. I picked up the fact that he said that Stacey Abrams 
was smarter than any of the Republicans in Georgia. That's a scary fact. You know, that that that, that worries me. And talking about inflation, the Democrats have gotten what they wanted. How long have they been for $15 an hour minimum wage? And you're talking about inflation going away by doing certain things. Well, now you've got that baked in the cake. So it's going it's going to be hard to get inflation down no matter what they do. And I'll tell you right now, I think gas will be $6 an hour by September 1st because they're not going to open up any. In fact, they're canceling more leases. They're not going to open it up. They're going to make it. I, I don't know if they're trying to create a crisis so that the government can take care of it. But something's going on. You know, I, I think everybody feels it. Everybody I talk to says, this this isn't usual. This this isn't like it was back in the the seventies. This this is different. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Joe picked up on that. I did as well. In fact, I've had multiple conversations with Robert about Stacey Abrams, and he thinks she is unbelievably competent, driven to win. Whatever it takes really? to win in Georgia, she's driven. There is no there is no limit. There is no speedometer. There is no governor. There is no, well, that's a little too extreme, or we'll never do um, that. She's an extremely underestimated political operative. And, I mean, I think Kemp beats her in Georgia because of the, uh, the, the failures of Biden. I mean, Stacey Abrams, I think, is going to lose the Georgia gubernatorial race, not because of her, but because of Joe Biden. You know, the, the headwinds the Democrats face and the independents are more inclined to vote for the Republican candidate. But, yeah, I think we've done a, you know, she's a, um, she just doesn't look the part, so to speak. You know what I mean? But, but Robert's convinced me she is unbelievably savvy. She's shrewd. She's calculating. She's manipulative. And she's power hungry. And when you take those ingredients, um, they become a very worthy foe. Mm. And I think anybody that doesn't believe um, she's credible, legitimate, and um, in it to win it, you'll get exactly what you deserve. Now, now I want to say this about the other candidates. You know, uh, it seems to me, and, and Robert elaborated on this a bit, I don't want to say it's the Rice strategy. I mean, Rice may fall into this. You know, Tom may have um, trying to drive turnout of the Democrats. I mean, we know that. It, I think you said he's advertising on gospel uh, on our gospel station. Well, I mean, that's a that's an you know a kind of an urban station. That's an African American uh, turnout. So uh, you got to believe they're playing in to this strategy. But but I just think if I'm a candidate, if I'm Russell Fry, or if I'm Barbara Arthur, or Mark McBride, or or, or Ken Richardson, or Garrett Barton, or or Spencer Morris, I'm trying to prepare for the inevitable. In other words, I'm trying to get ready now to monitor police the voting roles of the Democrats. I mean, you can't trust the Democrats to do it. I'll tell you this. Here's what I'll say on the record. If I'm Save America and I want a Trump-endorsed candidate to win, and I think Russell Fry is going to be in a runoff with Tom Rice, I would spend whatever I had in enforcement of ballot integrity. I mean, I would I would plead to the to the Save America Super PAC uh, you can't directly, I mean, they, you know, the campaign can't directly communicate with the super PAC, but somebody on their behalf, somebody who wants, um, you know, a, a different candidate than Tom Rice, I would, I would get in front of someone from Save America and say, here are the political realities. Here, here's what we think is a potential outcome. Here's how we thwart or impede the progress of that potential outcome. And I guess it means, you know, uh, having hiring people to go through some of the voting rolls 
and, and to manage some of the polling sites and to, to document who votes in the Democrat primary. Do they try to come back in two weeks and vote in the Republican runoff? I mean, Robert said it's illegal, and it is, but, but it's still going to happen to some degree. I would just try to strongly discourage it with some sort of enforcement mechanism. And, I mean, I think Save America, I mean, they've got a, what, a $150 million cash on hand. Um, they could spare enough money to hire people um, you know, to man these polling stations and just let the Democrats know, um, break the law, you're going to get caught. You know, maybe the intimidation. Now, that's where you got to be careful. Voter intimidation. Right. You know how those Republicans are. <laughs> Voter intimidation is what they're trying to do. Um, I just don't trust the Democrats to be uh, frank and honest. I'm sorry. I just don't. And I think people that vote in the Democrat primary June the 14th are going to try their damnedest to come back and vote against the Trump-endorsed candidate two weeks later. You can bet that's going to happen. Take a break. Back in a minute. I knew there was a study out there, the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. How do you remember stuff I, like I don't, that? I read so much of this crap, uh, and I just, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, man. Some of this just kind of lodges somewhere back there somewhere. But the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health did a firearm removal law um, study, and Connecticut kind of bought into it. Uh, fell, you know, they use Connecticut as kind of a, um, a case study. And out of that came, um, the liberal belief that for every 10 to 20 guns we take off the street, it saves uh, one human life. So the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg school, a public health commissioned and executed the study. Let's go to the phone. Jim in Florence. Hello, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. <clears throat> Ken, holding a Democrat accountable is, is intimidation. I don't know if you knew that or not, but, <laughs> <laughs> but hey, so, Ken, to go on my rant from yesterday about the, the absolution of the Second Amendment, Ken, the Third Amendment states government can't take or cannot quarter troops in your home during war, but in a manner prescribed by law. The Fourth Amendment says government cannot search your private effects, but upon probable cause. The Fifth Amendment says a person cannot be tried for a crime unless indicted by a grand jury. It also says person cannot be deprived of life liberty or property without due process or have a private property taken for public use without just compensation every time that uh, a right is not absolute ken there is a mechanism within the bill of rights for the government <clears throat> to to do something there is absolutely no mechanism within the second amendment um, for the government to do anything, and it goes so far as to say that it shall not be infringed. Um, so it certainly is absolute, but the only reason it's not absolute right now is because guns are scary and we want the government to protect us. Um, well, let me ask you this. Let me, I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second. Um, do you believe in mental illness? Again, that goes back to the Fifth Amendment, where um, if we're going to deprive somebody <laughs> their life, liberty, or property, we have to do it with due process. So if we're going to deprive somebody of their Second Amendment, then we have to do that with due process and going in front of uh, uh, taking evidence to the court um, and using due process to take their right. And that's what I said a second ago. I'd be real careful about what the evidence is. I mean, your evidence may not be as compelling as my evidence, or excuse me, the evidence may not compel me as much as it compels you. We're on the same team. The argument I'm making, uh, hypothetically, somebody is mentally ill. Does that person have a right to own a weapon when they've exhibited behavior that you believe could lead to them hurting themselves or someone else? 
does that person have the right to self-defense in their own home? I, I'm not arguing that. I'm saying if someone is mentally ill, I mean, let's use a, a, a terrible tragedy. Let's say somebody mentally ill in Florence it, it owns a weapon and, and they break in a home and kill a family. And we find out after the fact that they are unbelievably mentally ill. They're deranged. They have all sorts of things kicking in their world that's not been addressed. Um, did we fail that family? Or did that family fail themselves? Well, I mean, I, you, you, but, but I'm saying, I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. We're on the same team. I just think there are legitimate debates to be had about some of the some of the non-absolutist thoughts I have on the Second Amendment. I mean, I'm not saying I disagree with you. I just think there is a very legitimate debate to be had about mental illness, depression, uh, you know, some of these other issues that society deals with uh, individually and collectively uh, in relation to gun ownership. I couldn't agree more. Hey, Ken, uh, one last question on a different topic. Could y'all call the voter registration office and maybe get somebody to come on and talk about um, the mechanisms they have in place to keep somebody who votes in one party's primary from voting in the other party's runoff. That is a and really maybe, good idea. That's yeah, a great idea. Thank that. you, Jim. Appreciate it. That's a yeah. We'll do that. Let's reach out to someone at the election commission to see if they've got a safeguard in place that will stop someone who voted in the Democrat primary from coming back two weeks later and vote in the Republican primary that's a really good point and a good question um now once again i've argued from a candidate's perspective and and kind of a political action committee perspective but yeah that you know that there's a um there's a, a paper trail i mean there's pe- there are people that work in that business that have a responsibility to we the voters to make sure we have as much integrity or as little unintegrity uh lack of integrity in our elections as possible and feasible. That's kind of an interesting point. Uh, we'll do that. Let's try to get somebody on the air tomorrow to explain what sort of safeguards are in place to stop a Democrat from voting in the Democrat primary and in the Republican runoff. 843-661-0937 is our number. We'll take a break in just a second. 843-661-0937, last hour of the day. This is kind of a short week. Uh, late Memorial Day, Labor Day. Memorial Day was Monday. So, um, yeah, I feel we've kind of got back in the groove. Uh, oh, yeah. Thanks to you, our listeners, uh, quicker than I kind of sort of imagined we'd struggled a bit because graduation, the beginning of summer, and people are on very atypical schedules. But no, thank you to our listeners who have decided to stick with us. A lot of through participation the early part this week. Summer. No question about it. Let's go to the phone. Much appreciated. Here is Steve in Florence. Hello, Steve. Good morning, guys. I'll give you another little stat. About 56 million people have died or been rounded up and killed due to gun control throughout the 20th century. Um, I'm kind of curious where the sheriff and um, chief of police stand on any sort of gun confiscation, if it ever were to come to it. I knew back home where all the sheriffs and chiefs stood um, and the only new thing that I would support for gun law, and it's only because I agree with it, is um, once a year to take a safety class, um, to be able to purchase and buy a gun, um, just you know, basic safety because you can't drive that home enough, and then shooting to be proficient with it. And I'll take that off the air. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate it. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let me ask Rev this. 
um, extreme risk protection orders. I mean, this is a um, okay. this is an academic theory uh, generated or its genesis is from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Um, they, they would argue that is is kind of a civil order. Um, it's, it affords you, as, as Jim said earlier, due process. Um, but if or if you are not a risk of violence, uh, in essence, that's what they're arguing, um, that the, the ERPO, the Extreme Risk Protection Order, is a civil order um, with due process protections. In other words, you, you know, you're innocent to proven guilty. Um, okay, right. Uh, that is issued by a court when someone is at risk of violence. Now, now, here's some of their categorizations, and I want you, I want to get your opinion to this. Um, recent acts or threats of violence toward self or others. I mean, is that a red flag? Recent acts or threats of violence toward self or others. I mean, from violence? your perspective. Yeah, his, yeah. Okay. History of threatening or dangerous behavior. Sure. Okay. Um, history of or current risky alcohol or controlled substance use. A little more gray, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, a little less right. certain on that. Recent violation of a domestic violence protective order. A violation of, a, uh, of probably, an order? A restraining yeah. order, so to speak. Um, unlawful or reckless use, display, or brandishing of a firearm. I mean, that's a little bit yeah. scary. I mean, right. isn't it? Okay. Right. Um, reckless. Cruel, and... Cruelty to animals. Oh. I mean, there's something about the mind. I mean, if someone's willing to be that cruel to an animal... Right. Uh, there's something demented there. There's some kicking there. I mean, I don't think those are unreasonable, but but how but how at does what that point? Sure. I mean, and how does that evidence apply to every you, individual? You take away the rights. Okay. If I'm if all of a sudden I am un, unlawful to reckless use by displaying or brandishing a firearm, but but I'm having fun at a um, you know what I mean at a I I, I don't point it at anybody. I just, I'll take this gun and you know what I mean. I mean, I, you see where I'm headed. I mean, there's going to be a lot of circumstantial evidence here, and and it's going to be evidence. Because once again, they're arguing that uh, you deserve due process, but this um, this extreme risk protection order will allow someone to take your gun if they deem you a risk to yourself or to others. It gets real squishy real fast here. And, you know, who gets to decide the parameters? Who gets to decide the guidelines? I mean, I certainly don't want the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health you know, insinuating what is fair game and what is not, nor do I want um, Richard Blumenthal, senator from Connecticut. Yeah, somebody who is demonstrated to be very anti-gun. No question about it. Right. Um, uh, domestic violence protection orders. It's kind of an interesting study, and so it's very academically inclined, but it, 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 it goes down. Once again, here we go. You ready? If people trusted their government to be a sound mind, body, and soul, I think a lot more people would say, okay, I mean, I, I'll, I'll give you some of that. I mean, if I trust the government, if I believed that the government genuinely w was in operating on my best interest, in other words, the government was not bought and sold, it wasn't um, lobbied, it wasn't, you know, big farm and all. I mean, in other words, if the government were true and sincere and honestly trying to do right by the American people, I think they could probably get the attention of, of many, many moderates who said, okay, History of threatening or dangerous behavior, a recent violation of a domestic violence protective order, unlawful or reckless use, display, or brandishing of a firearm, cruelty to animal. Okay, government, I think you try to do right. So here, I mean, you know, how can we help um, facilitate or create some legislation? That we might be able to agree but, but the on. problem with the government, guys, nobody trusts it anymore. <laughs>
I mean, that that's right. where, and look, we didn't do that. You in the government did that. I mean, I contributed to that in some way, shape, or form by my political, um, you know, example. I mean, I, I'm not ashamed of that. I mean, I, I'll include myself. I mean, throw me in the pile with the rest of the no-count politicians. I mean, I let people down. I accept responsibility for letting those people down. Um, I'm no longer a politician because I contributed to the downfall or the disgrace of American politics. But there are too many people not paying a price. There are too many people getting away with certain things that they never in a million years should get away with. And that's the problem with gun laws. The, the people you're asking to trust the government simply have no trust in the government. Is the Second Amendment absolute or not? Some believe it is. Some believe it's not. Who monitors, polices, measures the Second Amendment against um, absolutism? The government? Really? I mean, do you want me to trust these people to act on my best uh, interest in behalf? No, no way in Hades. I'll trust those people to operate or act on my in my best interest or uh, on behalf of my best interest. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Good morning, Mike. Hey, uh, I've got a couple of quick answers for you there, but I think you're absolutely right on that gun control because just look at that situation in uh, Virginia up there where they wanted to put those uh, uh, parents that were concerned about their children on terrorist lists. I mean, you get a rogue uh, uh, government agent and uh, things go south in a hurry. But uh, I wanted to answer your question. It's unbelievably easy to check if someone voted in uh, a a Republican primary and a Democrat primary because you can buy a voter list from the state and it says it has a list of the voters that voted by county, by legislative district, by senatorial district, by congressional district, uh, that voted uh, in each uh, primary. And all you have to do is do a match against it. I've done that. I recommend do that uh, years ago. Uh, it's been um, decades now, but... Uh, that that's very easy to do, and the lists are readily available from the state, or they used to be. But Mike, it uh, takes a lot of manpower to police that situation. You know where I'm headed. I mean, I understand the information's available. How do you well, execute a plan? You can, get, you can get all the people. I mean, it's right there. It's a matter of public record that you voted in uh, the Democrat primary and then went over and voted in the Republican primary. Okay, but you take a Democrat precinct. You take a Democrat precinct and and the precinct worker, you know, the person checking the book. I mean, do you really believe Mm -hmm. they're going to be honest about doing their job? I'm not accusing anybody of a crime or breaking the law, but we know it happens. I mean, Robert said, Kahaley said, it's against the law. Oh, absolutely. But but, so so my point is, okay, the, the information is readily available. Um, you can get the voter rolls, yeah. you can purchase that information, but then you've got to find a team of volunteers or, or paid employees to man some of these heavily Democrat precincts to make sure that the people who voted two weeks ago in a Democrat primary aren't there to vote again for a Republican you know, congressional candidate. Well, now that that's another situation, but I, I think they would uh, you could easily uh, demonstrate that they improve that they voted in two different elections because then you go back and check your voter roll and you see where they signed on this one. And then their uh, initials are uh, over on the other uh, primary. So um, 
getting a list of the people that broke the law. Now, prosecuting them, that's going to take time. And uh, you have to, and, and it's a little more complex to get those uh, uh, signatures that you sign when you go vote in South Carolina. But uh, that that's real easy to check as far as determining that someone did vote in uh, two primaries. That it take very little manpower. I'm like one person that knew what they were doing. Yeah, but you're uh, talking about after but, the fact. I mean, if they vote, it's over. I mean, the, the point I'm making, you got to be proactive. You can't be. Re- you can't say, "Hey, look, this person voted in, in this primary, and they came back and voted." I mean, I, I just you're not going to take that vote off the oh, book. I mean, we saw that oh, in 2020. Oh, right. uh, what, what I'm saying is, when well, you got to have poll watchers. They're, they're, well, I, poll I think you got to have more than poll watchers. I mean, I think you've got to have very, very competent, dedicated people who are willing to be a bit confrontational when required and may be accused of voter intimidation. I mean, that's what you're going to to be accused of. I mean, if you're there watching to make sure these things don't happen, you're going to be accused of voter intimidation the the second you show up to monitor and police that situation. You're right. You're you're right. I think uh, that that's uh, the difficult part, and that's where it's going to take some serious manpower and some serious bucks to uh, hire people to uh, uh, look after that. No question. But, Thank you, Mike. Uh, Appreciate it. And that's the point I try to make. Is I mean, yeah, I think the I mean, no question, the information is readily available. I mean, why? I mean, how do you mail a list to the um what, what they call the R fours? I mean, the R4s are Republicans who voted in the last four, you know, Republican primaries, R2s. The R2s are the Republicans who voted in the last two uh, Republican primaries. The D1s voted in the last Democrat primary, D3s. I mean, all that information is available. I mean, Voter Vault and some of these other um, entities or enterprises have that information for sale. Uh, The point I'm trying to make is how do you, uh, well, let me ask you this. Uh, Do you trust the poll watcher? I mean, do you trust the person there? responsible for making sure um, no, no shenanigans go on? Do you trust the person with a book in their hand when John Smith walks up to the poll and John Smith says, I want to vote in the um, the Republican runoff for Congress, and that person says, show me your voter ID. Uh, you show the voter ID. Um, no, you voted in the Democrat primary two weeks ago. You can't vote again. I mean, do we really believe that we can trust that system in place today. The point I'm trying to make is if I were one that believed, if I'm any of the opponents, in other words, if, if the Rice's strategy is we can't win this with Republican primary voters, but we could get enough Democrats to cross over and potentially get to 50% plus one vote. If I am Russell Fry, Barbara Arthur, Mark McBride, Ken Richardson, Garrett Barton, Spencer Morris, um, and I end up in a runoff opposite of Tom Rice, that is going to be my priority. I mean, if I've convinced myself um, that the only way I get beat in this runoff is if uh, if uh, if a herd of Democrats show up and and vote, you owe it your campaign to make sure you police and monitor that situation the best way you know how. Now you're going to be accused of voter intimidation. I can assure you with that, and it'll be probably newsworthy. You know, the CNN will pick that story up, or or MSNBC pick that story up. But but you either do that or you trust the people in these heavily Democrat precincts to monitor their own books and audit their own files in a way that uh, is trustworthy. I mean, that that's the complication here. And I'm not accusing anybody of anything. But when you look at the numbers, when you look at the polling data, and I've said it for, I, since the 
the impeachment vote. You know, I believed once the impeachment vote took place, we were going to have a hotly contested Republican primary. Here we are. I thought we'd have a Trump endorsement. Here we are. I thought we'd have some data. Here it is. And and I thought there would be, uh, you know, kind of the um, the unusual scenario of Republican primary, excuse me, Democrat voters voting in a Republican primary trying to help a Republican candidate uh, win that election. I think all of those things have kind of sort of played themselves out. The question before us is, um, if you are the the person running against Tom Rice, the incumbent, who has that impeachment vote around his neck. I mean, Tom knows that. I mean, his wife says so much in the most recent ad when she says, you know, maybe we disagree on this one vote. But Tom has done, done a lot of things for this district, and we need to send him back to Washington on 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 all of our behalf. That that's a legitimate ad. I mean, that's a kind of um, explains the circumstance or situation as best you can. But but I I just for the life of me, there's no way if I were Barbara Arthur or I were Garrett Barton or I were Russell Fry or I were Ken Richardson, there is no way in this world I would not dedicate some of my resources to some of these heavily Democrat precincts to audit and monitor who voted two weeks ago in the Democrat primary, and are they trying to come back and vote in the Republican runoff? I just don't trust the Democrats to shoot you straight on that issue. I'm sorry. Uh, call me uh, whatever you choose to call me, uh, but stupid ain't one of them. And uh, uh, no, no, not in a million <laughs> years would I trust that to take care of itself. Fix it before it happens. Because once that vote is cast, once that name is in the books, it's over. I mean, we've seen that in 2020. To ask the courts or legal authorities to overturn or undo, uh, you know, someone could get in trouble, but it's not going to affect the outcome of the election. The way you do that is to make sure those people who shouldn't vote don't vote. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Charles in Lamar. Hey, Charles. Hey, good morning. You know, I was getting uh, all primed up to respond to Mike's comments about the, the cows already out of the barn then, but, uh, Ken, you jumped in there, so you changed my, my train of thought <laughs> a little bit. But um, can you imagine, just imagine for a moment, that you live in Connecticut and you go to the polls to vote and you look at the ballot and you say, Richard Blumenthal, that's that sleazy guy who's on the wrong side of every issue who committed stolen valor and never served in Vietnam, although he he campaigned as a Vietnam vet. That's my guy. I think I'm going to vote for him. And I just cannot imagine how those people up there will 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 vote for him. The reason I call is Stacey Abrams is an extremely intelligent, well-educated woman, and you do not ever want to try to stand between her and getting what she wants. And that, that includes uh, the governorship of Georgia or having Democrats elected to the Senate or probably the buffet at Golden Corral, but that's another story. Um, she's an extremely intelligent woman, and she should not be taken for granted. And, uh, and that's all I've got. Well, that's a lot. Time. Thank you, Charles. Appreciate that chocolate fountain. <laughs> At the uh, the Golden Corral, I remember that well. Back in my didn't give a rip days, you know about what I ate and when I ate and how I ate. I'm a little bit more 
uh, dedicated to health and nutrition because I've gotten older and can't get away with that chocolate fountain like I did. No, I mean, I remember a conversation that Kahaley and I had a couple of years ago, maybe, because um, I had the same premonition about Stacey Abrams. And Robert said, no, 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 no. I'll assure you. I'll assure you she is very, very bright, very, very competent, very savvy, and totally dedicated to winning. Whatever it takes, she will do. So because, you know, Georgia's in the South, and, you know, it's um, it, it's very dissimilar to South Carolina. It's very, really and truly dissimilar to the South in that it has Atlanta. It has, you know, a, a metropolitan area, 6 million people, largely African-American. I mean, that changes the demographic makeup of Georgia in relation to the majority of other Southern states. Um, so so don't underestimate Stacey Abrams. In fact, I think she relishes the opportunity to be underestimated. I mean, there's some people in politics that, that like to be underestimated. You know, they'll do yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I'm sitting at the table. No, with no, one. no I, I've, I've tried to play it like I see it. I've tried to. <laughs> I'm just uh, saying. But, but there's some out there that, that are all a, shucks and dadgummit, yeah. and, you know, and ain't y'all you to death. And uh, the entire time they're picking your pocket. So <laughs> she would be one of these that mm-hmm. do not, do not underestimate. She is very, very competent and very good at the craft. And, and once again, very, very dedicated and committed to. To winning, so you think some at some point she may end up as a governor or in some other elected position? She will be an influencer. I don't know that she'll win election after election, but she will be one of the dominant influential voices and forces in the Democrat Party for the next generation. No doubt about it. Let's go to the phone. Here is Ashley in Poston's Corner. Hey, Ashley. Good morning, fellas. Good morning. Uh, great show as usual. Um, there's been a theme this morning with not only with the show, but I think there's also a theme in America and the theme is trust. So we started off this morning talking about economics and who caused, uh, the rapid inflation we got. Well, who, who caused the rapid inflation we got right now? I mean, the government. The government. The quantitative easing created inflationary pressures. I mean, it's macroeconomic stimulus. You call it whatever you'd like. I mean, they call it quantitative easing and bond buying and security purchasing and and the Fed balance sheet at $9 trillion. I mean, we can get as elaborate and complicated as you'd like. But in theory, it's macroeconomic stimulus. That creates inflationary pressure. That devalues whatever currency that economy depends on. Well, exactly. Well, And who's trying to take away your guns? Uh, you could argue the Democrats the within the government. Yeah, the government. And 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 do you trust? Do you trust? Do you trust uh, Lindsey Graham to go up there on South Carolina's behalf and do this? I think I actually I hear you, but I think I'm forced to. He is my duly elected representative. I mean, he is a senator from South Carolina. Um, I trust him more than I trust the senator from Connecticut. Because I feel oh, like I absolutely. have some skin in the game with Lindsey. And I'm not defending Lindsey, but in a representative republic, if we're that disappointed and frustrated with Lindsey, then somebody should have beat him by now. You see where I'm headed? So so oh, I whether do. I like I, I have to put my faith in him, I do. I, and I agree completely. I, I agree completely. He He's our guy right now. I, I think he needs to – I think like the other caller said, they need to call him, but – the theme of society right now, not only on the economy, not only on abortion, not only on guns, 
that only own everything else in the world. The theme right now is we just don't trust any of them. We don't trust the rhinos. We don't trust the Democrats. We don't trust any of them. So is that on us or on them? I mean, I think it's on them. I mean, I would would love to get up every morning believing that I could have a high degree of trust and faith in my government. Yeah. I mean, I'd love that. I mean, that that would be utopia. But I have learned the hard way, and I've contributed to this. I've expressed that uh, reality in my world. I've contributed to the distrust in government, but but I've owned it. I've taken responsibility. I paid the price, and I've moved on. The, The problem we have in government today, similar to the Sussman case, most Americans believe that they'd be punished beyond extreme if they had done what he did, but because he had political connection, because he'd gained some degree of political favor, because he was an insider, um, he was treated fundamentally different. That's why I said yesterday, and I stand by this comment, actually, that I think Sussman getting acquitted was a good thing because it only intensifies the distrust that you have with government, that I have with government. And there's a breaking point somewhere, and I don't know when it is, but when does the government lose the moral authority to enforce laws and judgments against you that they choose to not enforce against others? There's a point somewhere down the road where the American people say, you're not enforcing that law because you don't have the moral authority any longer. Therefore, I'm not following what you say I must do. And I agree. And it goes back all the way down to the local level. I mean, it, 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 it not only goes from the higher level, it goes all the way back down to the local level where we got a magistrate that's letting people off for next to nothing bail. I mean, I, I think it's deep-rooted trust issues against state, local governments, uh, Democrats, uh, you name it, that have, have pushed us as a party to be more combative and more, uh, how I say this right, more combative and more intellectual about what we're doing, specific issues. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a great thing. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate it. I'll give you an example. I've got this story for in my folder for about uh, two or three days. Um, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary Yellen, did an interview with Wolf Blitzer on CNN. And um, she basically said, admitted, she misjudged the trajectory of inflation. Um, Blitzer asked her a question. I'll, I'll read it verbatim. Was it a mistake, Madam Secretary, to downplay the inflation risk? Did that contribute to the problems we're all seeing right now? She responded, and I quote, I think I was wrong then about the path that inflation would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that boosted energy and food prices and supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly. And at that time, I didn't fully understand. Here's my question. What will happen to Yellen for being that wrong? What happens to a heart doctor if he's that wrong about your heart condition? What happens to a race car driver if he's that wrong about, you know, going into the turn or or passing the car? What happens to a radio show who is that irresponsible and wrong about believing something about their audience? I mean, what happens in the free market? What happens in the marketplace? The metrics and measures apply. Somebody loses their job when you're this damn wrong. She'll get reappointed. Oh, sure she will. Absolutely she will. Her pension will be um, substantial. Her, her health insurance will be secured for life. That's the issue, guys. 
the, the fact that the public sector does not operate under the same um, premonitions or predicates that the private sector does, and something has to change about that. You want to gain the trust of the American public? Janet Yellen should be fired today, not tomorrow, not, not play out her contract, not, not to the end of the term. She should be removed from that job today. You can't be Treasury Secretary and that wrong about inflation. You can be that wrong about the movie you thought was good and it's not, the restaurant you went to that you thought the food was going to be great and it was not. You're the Treasury Secretary and you were that wrong about inflation and you're still the Treasury Secretary. In the private sector, you make that mistake, you're done. And you should be done. And that's why people have such low levels of trust in government. We don't believe they hold themselves accountable. And the only thing we can do is try to vote, 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 you know, a point, a point, a point, um, complain, complain, complain. How many of you really enjoy waking up every day, hearing me complain and kind of cheering on the complaining department? You know, I mean, it, 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 I'd love to come up, uh, get on the air every morning and say, hey, let me tell you the wonderful things our government did last <laughs> night. Let me tell you the exceptional things the government stands for today. But that's not, I'd be lying to you, and I'm not going to lie to you. The government is, is, you know, we talk about corruption. You know, Breeze and I have this conversation over and over and over again. Is it corruption or is it, is it incompetence? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, when corruption meets incompetence, it's a bad day for all of us. I think Yellen is corrupted by Washington insiderisms, and I think the insiders had to say, uh, you know, we're going to do this COVID relief bill. We're going to print these trillions of dollars. We're going to basically airdrop it from um, this manna from heaven, so to speak. You know, those who get it, get it. Those who don't, don't. Who cares? We're going to stimulate the economy. Yellen knew that was absurd, but she can't talk about the absurdities because she risked being removed from the club. You know, it goes back to, to, to what we said yesterday. The, the, the reason Trump was um, uh, dealt with the way he was dealt with, he was perceived as a threat. Trump was not uh, a lifelong politician. He, he didn't have a, um, you know, a, a, a book of favors on one side and a book of debts to the other. I mean, Trump's not a political operative. I mean, he's very transactional, don't get me wrong, but the majority of his transactions have been as a business guy toward the government. Government self-deals with itself, and we the people pay. So when Yellen is this wrong about something as important as inflation, and she is the Treasury Secretary, if we are a true superpower and we're governing ourselves in a responsible and effective manner, Yellen's looking for a job today, but she's not. She'll probably at some point in time be reappointed. Jerome Powell said, you know, we could have, you know, we're going to work hard for a soft landing. You know what Jerome Powell knows? A soft landing is impossible. To the, with $9 trillion on the balance sheet, and we're talking about quantitative easing, and now we're, we're, we're quantitative tightening. I mean, he knows what's going to happen, but if he says that, he gets kicked out of the club. You know, he gets invited to force him at the, at, the, at the Washington National Country Club, you know, this weekend. I mean, that, that is the, the absurdity of that. And we, the people, are paying such a significant price for their corruption and their incompetence. And we need to continue to demand better. Let's go to the phone. Mike Page with Florence County GOP is on the line. Hey, Mike. Hey, Dave, Ken, hope y'all are doing well. Tried calling in earlier, but just couldn't because uh, your talk show has got a lot of people wanting to talk. And um, 
But I wanted to just talk to you just for a second about is the Florence County Republican Party. We had our first poll watcher training uh, Tuesday, and um, we need more poll watchers. We need to secure our elections, and we're having our next training uh, next Thursday evening. If you're interested in being a Republican poll watcher on June the 9th at our campaign office. But there has been a lot of changes in the election laws uh, just recently with this new one coming up. One of them is the, about the signs. Um, camp, candidate signs used to be within 200 feet of the um, poll, polling place, but now that's moved to 500 feet. And so that's just one small change. And there's also been some changes as far as felonies are concerned with um, not doing your job as a poll manager. A poll manager is different from a poll clerk the poll clerk is in charge of the poll. The poll manager is just your normal workers and stuff. And some of these uh, charges can be a $1,000 fine with five years in prison. So there has been a lot of changes, a lot of good. I want to uh, throw out a good kudos to um, Julian Young, the executive director of the Election Commission. He is really on top of making uh, some good changes that are out there. And if anybody wants to be a poll watcher, to watch our elections. We want to train you. We want to get you uh, your certification, get your name badge and stuff, and get where you, when you walk into the polling place, you know what you're going to be looking at. Uh, it's going to be June the 9th at our campaign at 630 campaign office on 1619 South Irby Street. But um, this is something that you can do. I have so many people ask me, say, well, what can I do? And that was one of my questions, eight or nine, Dennis. What can I do? you can come be a certified poll watcher to watch our elections. A lot of people work. I take off work. I just, I just, as my position, I believe I need to do that. So I take that whole day. I travel the entire county uh, to the polling places. But please come out and help us make our elections secure and be a poll watcher. So uh, anyway, go to our website, and you can get my phone number, um, all in for fcgop.com. And I just wanted to just encourage those to come out. Okay, Ken? Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. You know, that's interesting. And the volunteers, I mean, the, you know, these folks are doing it because they just want, uh, they want to be a part of the political process at whatever degree. I mean, everybody's not called to run for office or somebody, people don't have the capacity to make big contributions, but, but everybody can help. I mean, it's, it's our system of government. And I'm a big believer in we get what we deserve. If we become lackadaisical and apathetic and, and kind of check out and don't worry about it, We'll get exactly what we deserve. And Jefferson gave a lot of warnings about the motivated few. I'll try to find that quote during the break. I don't want to misquote Jefferson. He deserves better than that. Um, I'd do him injustice with the Southern drawl. I certainly don't want to misquote him uh, with the Southern drawl. But I want to try to find that quote where he talks about, you know, the motivated few. If you got a dismissive mass, the motivated few will make sure the game works as they need uh, the game to work. Now, I will say this to Mike, with all due respect, if I were running a campaign <laughs> And I, and I knew what was about to happen or what the attempt was going to be to Democrats vote in Republican primaries. Um, I would want volunteers, but I'd have paid staff. People tend to perform better when they're being paid. And if I were running my campaign and I was a candidate for the 7th Congressional District in the Republican primary, I'd love on those volunteers. I'd thank those volunteers. I'd carry them Krispy Kreme donuts every time I saw them. But I'd have some people on the payroll. Because uh, people just tend to perform a little better and proficiently when they're held accountable to what? The do-re-mi. Mm -hmm. Take a break. <laughs> Back in a minute.
843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Dan in Florence. Good morning, Dan. Yeah, Ken, uh, first uh, I want to say I really like that phrase, when corruption meets incompetence. Hadn't heard that. I think that describes to a T the entire Biden administration, if you look at the way they're behaving. A couple of quick points, one on guns and one on voting. Uh, With regard to guns, some of the the new laws that are being proposed uh, may, may help, but I just don't see how you're going to stop a gun thug or a psycho from getting the gun if they're determined to get one. You're not. And, you know the answer. And, I know exactly. the answer. You're not. Exactly. And and with regard to vote, voting, um, I moved here from North Carolina, retired here, and, and it, it, it was the case there. I don't know if it still is that you could uh, you had to declare you were Democrat, Republican, or Independent, and they may add a couple more in there by now. But you could not vote in a primary that you were not registered to vote in. In other words, I remember very well telling my friends, "Hey, you you know you can you can either vote in the Republican primary or Democrat party, but you can't vote in both," and they keep a record of it. And I don't understand why South Carolina can't do that. Uh, it, it would take the legislature, who's controlled by Republicans, as far as I can see, if they think it's a big enough problem, they need to do something about it. Yeah. And and uh, the um, uh, uh, you, uh, you, but you're not going to stop all of the voter fraud. We know that. And maybe some more electronic stuff like in other words when you vote there's a computer system there and again that's got to be funded by the state there's a computer system online there and they you know when you go up there to vote you're they got a record that you voted and and when you if you go back to vote you walk up there they're going to say oh sorry you've already voted so i think there's a way to fix it uh it's just going to take the will uh, and maybe it'll take the problem getting bad enough that our legislators decide they want to deal with it. Thank you, sir. Appreciate the call. You know, he's talking about North Carolina. Um, South Carolina is an open primary state. There, there's three kind of primaries. People think there are two, closed and open. No, there's a closed primary, an open primary, and then there's what they call a modified primary. North Carolina is a modified primary state. That means... There, there are certain caveats. It's not open. It's not closed. It's been, you know, but but once again, people believe that it's either open or closed. No, there's about nine or ten states that have modified primaries. Mm-hmm. North Carolina is one of the states. Now, I'm not as familiar with, with, the, with what modifications are, but it's not open. It's not closed. It's modified. South Carolina is an open primary state, and I've historically been in favor of an open primary. I think the parties are so far apart now. I mean, if you're one or the other, I mean, you're one or the other. I mean, you know, I'm an independent. I don't know if I'm a Republican or if you don't know if you're a Republican or Democrat now, you're not paying attention to American politics. You shouldn't be able to basically pick your opponent. Correct. Let's go to the phone. Here's Nick in Raleigh. Have about a minute here, Nick. Hey, uh, I just wanted to quote the great Dave Chappelle from a couple weeks, a couple specials ago. He said, you know, never forget the First Amendment is the First Amendment for a reason. And the founding fathers knew it. And the second amendment is the second amendment just in case you forgot about the first. 
He did say that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the call. Appreciate uh, the uh, the Dave Chappelle uh, bit this morning. There you go. You know, we've we said a hundred times, and we'll say it again. Seinfeld is a show about nothing. We're a show about everything, and I think today we proved that we are indeed a show about any and everything. Back in a minute. 